I was in the Arctic right before. Right what? Before. Yeah, yeah. I just came back from um, uh, from Svalbard, uh, which is where's like, that? It's uh, it's in the Arctic Circle, so it's like the last point that there is an inhabited like city. I mean, it's a town, a really tiny town before you get to the North Pole. Uh-huh. So it's like the only place that you can sort of set off in an expedition from the North Pole or to the North Pole. Okay. And it's it's not like it has some relationship with Norway, but it's not technically a part of Norway. Um so you actually like cross out of the border of Norway to get to Svalbard. Um and there's like one tiny town there that's like mostly a coal mining town and uh scientific research but like it's crazy like the sun never sets there so Whoa. yeah Did so you meet any cool people there oh yeah the town was dope i was i mean and you meet everybody within like the first 15 minutes that you're there because it's that tiny oh yeah shit. so like we we were up there i i sort of convinced my buddies to 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 go and uh and do a uh, a marathon uh, in in Svalbard, which is like the northernmost marathon in the entire world, and it's the only one with polar bear guards. So they have like dudes with guns, just like hanging out, and just in case like marathon runners get attacked by polar bears. Is it one of those marathons where they swim and run? Or no, just run? no, I those exist, um, yeah. but I just thought it would be like it'd be a a one of a kind bachelor party for my buddy so yeah convinced him to come up to uh uh, the arctic circle with me and uh we did our best on the marathon nobody nobody got eaten by a polar bear which is that's nice awesome i had a guy in here once that did uh one of those also eaten by a polar bear no no he um they were in the uh where were they he was swimming across that channel between russia and alaska can you do that yeah he swam across it there's like a little island in the middle yeah i've heard about that it's, so isn't that like um don't they call that like like tomorrow island or yesterday island yes yep yep it's like one of the only places in the world where t- i i i don't even like i've i've descended into the twilight zone even trying to figure out or to explain it so it's like the the day moves forward but it doesn't move forward on that island for some reason is that the deal I don't know what the exact how what the exact time difference is but like the basically if you swim if you move from like this one part of land to this island that's I think less than a mile away, the the time changes by like eight hours or something crazy. Whoa. Or maybe twelve hours. I'm not sure. But well, it's like you're you're definitely in the next day. Yeah. <clears throat> was there anybody there to like yeah. greet him? Yeah, there were some people. There's like a small village of people that live there. Like a very, very few people live there. It's a very remote place, but apparently they, they get by. I mean, this is, this is like one of the, you know, the, the sort of like dream projects is to like, just go to literally the most remote places on the world in the world and just see what people do there. What is the, what is the most remote place you've ever been? Remote. Remote's not really what you're going for, but. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe, maybe the Somali desert. Um, Oh shit. Okay. It certainly felt it felt really remote. Svalbard, like in terms of of like you know, you're just far away from any metropolitan city center. Um, but there was infrastructure out there. But you know, when when we went out into the 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 d- desert of Somaliland, it's like you're you're basically driving through wadis, which are these sort of dry riverbeds, and there's no infrastructure whatsoever. So your driver just kind of has to know how the desert looks. Mm. Um, 
as far as I understand. I mean, you know, I didn't speak enough Somali or any Somali uh, to ask him exactly how he's navigating. But um, but yeah, we were we were in, in jeeps uh, in a sort of armed convoy for like maybe eight hours, no roads, and then eventually just sort of came upon a nomad village. And I was like, this. Did you chew any of that cat? Leaf? I did. Did I you did. really? How oh, was yeah. it? It's pretty great. What is it? How does it make you feel? Mm, It's like, okay, the best I could describe it, at least my experience with it, is Mm. like, it's like you have the energy of having drunk like 12 cups of coffee, except without any of the anxiety. Yeah. So it's just like sort of mildly euphoric, um, uh, you know. It, like a like a maybe what I'd imagine a low dose of MDMA would be like something mm. like that. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it was it was funny when I when I took cot, I decided to you know give it a try because I was I was sort of finished up my work in in Somaliland and I was like okay well I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna get really high on cot and. <laughs> I because I deserve it. That sounds awesome. I was listening to uh, Rick Strassman talk about how he was growing it in his yard. Can you do that? Apparently, I don't know. Well, it's interesting. Like, I mean, the the plant's pretty interesting from an economic point of view too, because it's like, from what I understand, like the uh, like cot has to be transported uh, every day because it has to be quite fresh for it to be psychoactive. Mm. So you know, in the middle of a desert, it's hard to get really green leaves. And that's the first thing that you notice when you chew cot is you, you know, strip some of the branches away and it's like this sort of really vibrant green chlorophyll flavor. Like, I mean, it, it, imagine biting a plant and that's exactly what it is. Oh shit. Yeah. And then it turns your, your tongue like this vibrant neon green. Um, but it kind of sneaks up on you. Like I, I went to this this hotel that was in the area, and I was like, "All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat a bunch of mildly hallucinogenic East African leaves and just see what happens." Um, and so I was like, "Okay, I'm, you know, put like five leaves down." And they say that you have to dr- eat like the leaves of ten branches. Or you don't so. actually eat them, right? So it depends. From what I understood, unless somebody was messing with me, which is totally possible. Uh-huh. Um, in Yemen, they tend to spit it, and like they spit out the sort like of mash keep it stick stuck up there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then in uh, in Somalia, they tend to swallow the full mash. Mm. Um, totally possible. Somebody was just like messing with me and just trying to get me to eat leaves. Um, that is one hundred percent possible. But if if it worked, it worked. Yeah, I mean, look, I ate a lot of leaves. <laughs> I I had a I had a belly full of leaves, um, and I think it took like maybe like 30 branches but since it snuck up so slowly i was like uh like you know i've I've eaten maybe 20 you know 20 branches of this stuff and i was just sort of washing it down with non-alcoholic beer and it's not like it it tastes good by any stretch of the imagination so i like came up with a strategy where i just sort of like mash the leaves together into this like tight ball mm-hmm. and then just like put it in the back of my my jaw and just sort of like chew it as hard as i could and then like swallow it mm-hmm. And then I just felt like an absolute idiot because I'm like, I've literally just been eating leaves for like the last 20 minutes, maybe an hour. I don't know. So like, I was like, I'm going to go home. So I went back to where I was staying. And then I, I realized as I was sort of like looking at this, like really gorgeous sunset and having these, you know, remarkable feelings of, of, you know, warmth and gratitude towards the universe, um, that I, I was still, 
like eating the leaves like I had never stopped and I was just like well that's that's interesting and uh and then immediately I was just like you know what my clothes have no idea how much I care about them and I was like I gotta wash my clothes and I at this point was like maybe I'm getting a little bit high right now because I I've never really thought about my clothes feelings towards me before but at that point I was just sort of tearing through branches of cotton doing laundry and you know sort of like firework show of gratitude about about uh you know the world at large oh, and wow. at a certain point I was like <laughs> while I was doing you know, uh, uh, laundry high on on East African leaves. I like looked at myself in the mirror and I realized my whole mouth was just like slimer green, <laughs> like glowing green. And I was like, I, I think the cot worked. I That's think, amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You see the photos and the videos of those guys that do it all the time, and they're like, de- their whole jaw is like decaying. Yeah. Well, so that's an interesting part about it too. Is and so at least how it was explained to me was that cot actually has a a, a different effect the longer you use it. Mm. So you might start out with these sort of like you know this rapturous, almost hallucinogenic experience. But then as you get addicted to it, it starts to be more of a sedative. So when you oh, see okay. cot shacks and, you know, in, in Somalia is the only place that I've really seen them, um, Somaliland, I should say, um, then, you know, what you're essentially seeing is people like laying on these rattan mats and, you know, maybe they have like a bottle of water or like some tea next to them, but they look strung out as hell. And and that was the exact opposite of my experience with it my experience was it was like super energetic and effusive and and my mouth was green i was essentially just like you know a a, a, a three-year-old just <laughs> running around doing yeah. laundry and, and chewing on these leaves <laughs> i had a guy in here the other day who was trying to teach me all about the stuff kratom i guess i've heard about this yeah there's bars that are dedicated to it right all around here this there's, is a florida thing right i think so yeah yeah I, I had a hippie give that to me one time and it was just it was just weird murky water yeah then, i don't know what it is but a lot of like recovering alcoholics and a lot of recovering opioid addicts sometimes use it and i guess it helps them sort of like kick the alcohol or the pills they were taking before yeah i've heard and it's about like because it's like has a similar effect to alcohol but this guy was also telling me that it has a very similar effect to adderall He's like, I drink it with my coffee, and it makes me like supercharged. It's like drinking twenty cups of coffee. Was this was this a guy that was on the podcast, or were no, you just he, talking to him outside an AM? He was, he was not on a podcast, but he was <laughs> uh, he was here with one of my guests. Oh, and gotcha. he was Telling me about it. I guess like he has a kratom business. And he was trying to teach me all about it. Isn't isn't there also like a a kava bar deal out here? Kava, yeah, I think it's Which, the same thing. Is it? I have no idea. I'm not sure. Because kava is like is from the South Pacific somewhere. Uh, I think it's like uh, Kiribati is is like one of the main places that they have it. And I, from what I understand anyway, it's like a root that that used to be sort of like chewed up, and then you would like 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 I think they had like kids that would like chew it up and then spit it out, and then mm-hmm. you sort of drink this water out of shells. So mm. as you, as the drug would take effect, you'd like um, you'd you know be like, oh, I'm two three shells in and and then you know suddenly be um you know impermeable to pain i have no idea i've never oh, tried wow. it before yeah yeah it's interesting i've never tried it either but i'm gonna definitely try that kratom stuff <clears throat> um yeah anyways so thanks for coming yeah and uh tell people how you got into this journey of <laughs> traveling all over the world to these non-existent states or nations yeah 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 i and and i i don't actually know the right word either um yeah. like i i should 
I should know about like neutral zones, right? Or something like that. I, I would just say like unrecognized countries okay. at this point. Um, and after like studying it for five years, I was just like, I don't think I've gotten any further to like understanding. <laughs> like, I, like I, I did a bad job at research. Yeah. Um, I should I should know more about this. Um, but you started out working in intelligence. Yeah, briefly. How did you get into intelligence? This so. is super weird. Um. Oh, so yeah, I'm I'm Eric Zuleger. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm tell, yeah. tell everybody yeah, yeah. who you are. I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a I'm an author, and uh, and I've got a got a book out today um, called uh, "You Are Not Here: Travels Through Countries That Don't Exist." So basically, I spent a year. Oh, the poster. Oh, yeah, yeah, the poster. Here it is. Yeah. Can people see it. Let's see. Yeah. Up, up a little bit. There yeah. You go. Perfect. Yeah. You are not here. Travels through countries that don't exist. That's right. What is the picture? Um, the picture uh, was was done by uh, by Arabuza of Apparat Studios in uh, in Kosovo, and it's kind of like an amalgamation of various landmarks and the uh, the five unrecognized nations that mm. I went to. So down here we've got uh, the the citadel, which is uh, uh, an old old. Uh, uh, monument in um uh the center of of Erbil which is the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan um we've got uh, a MiG jet from Somaliland um this is some some stuff from Kosovo uh we got little little bits from Liberland here um but yeah that's that's, that's cool yeah we kind of wanted to go for like a a, a where's waldo vibe okay i um, like it very few people are going for the where's waldo vibe <laughs> these days yeah um but yeah, I um I, I decided to to write the book um because I I just kind of followed a really dumb question that uh that I came across while I was working briefly as a as an intelligence analyst. Um and uh yeah, I like I got that job in in potentially one of the stranger ways that one gets a job. Um Basically, I, I had been a Peace Corps volunteer before, uh, and I, I had always been a writer, so I was working mostly... In, Peace Corps volunteer. Yeah, right yeah, Peace Corps Albania, 2011-2013. Wow. Yeah, well, they, they sent me to uh, to northern Albania. Um, I was in a, a small small town called Byram Surrey. Mm. Shout out Byram Surrey. Um, uh, in in the district of Tripoya, so like the 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 claim to fame of that area is that like the bad guys in the movie Taken were from Tripoya. Um, okay. Yeah, and uh, I mean it's a it's a beautiful area in in Albania, but it does have have somewhat of a reputation for for being the seat of more traditional Albanian culture. But also there's they've had an issue with organized crime there too, mm. and so they decided you know they need to send American Peace Corps volunteers there to, yeah. to make sure that everybody stays nice and peaceful. Well, it's interesting you transitioned from that into not the CIA, but you no. worked for a, a contractor of the CIA, right? They weren't a contractor, no. So like what they were was a, a geopolitical forecasting company. So Like Stratfor? Yeah, just like them. Mm-hmm, just like them. Uh, so what, what happened was while I was in, while I was in the Peace Corps, I, uh, you know, I had, I had come out of, of university with a degree in theater. Um, and as soon as you leave, uh, university with a degree in theater, you're like, that was a mis- it was a mistake. To get a- <laughs> it was an error for me to get a degree in theater. Like there are zero people out here. Zero crossover. Nobody wants me to do two contrasting monologues. Um, nobody, nobody wants to know about Shakespeare. So mm-hmm. I, I should probably go and go and get some skills. Um, and so I went to Albania, uh, and, uh, 
you know, while I was there, I was I was still writing. Um, I was I was producing plays that were going back to the states, and they were they were kind of like live blogs that were performed back in the states. And then the money would come over to Albania, and we'd started like a mobile library out there in in Tripoya. Um, but as I started doing more like nonfiction stuff, I was like also reading a lot more nonfiction. And so guys like Christopher Hedges and uh, Sebastian Younger. And I read this one fantastic book about like big wave surfing called uh, The Wave. I can't remember who mm. it's by. Okay. Have you ever heard of it? No. Oh, it's awesome. Um, and, and like I never, you know, you're, you're fairly starved for books in the Peace Corps. It's like the, the library has what the library has. So, mm. you know. <laughs> what did you learn from the big wave surfing book? Well, it was, because I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a surfer. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty well an indoor, indoor child. Um, uh, and uh, I, I found it like really engrossing. And I was sort of struck by this journalist who was following these big wave surfers who were basically taking their own lives in their own hands. And nobody could quite understand why they were doing this. It's like, you know, if you, if you don't, if you're not successful on this hundred foot wave, like you'll either die or, or be injured greatly. And the book was largely about like, why do people take these tremendous risks? Um, and, and what I found in that book was, you know, that it was uniquely meaningful to them. Uh, and, and that the, uh, you know, the proximity to danger was, was inspiring and life affirming mm. to not only to, to them as athletes, but, but to the community around them. And so as I was reading that, I was also reading, like I said, Christopher Hedges and Sebastian Younger, all these like incredible, like geopolitical writers and, and war correspondents. And I was thinking that like, well, journalism felt, especially international journalism, seemed a lot like the, the sort of like big wave surfing of writing. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, and, and also I, I was sort of coming into a time where I was thinking like, I have a certain amount of skills and in this sort of like weird Venn diagram of like, you know, um, wanting to go to places that are, are a bit more unusual, um, being decent at, at putting a sentence together um, and being interested in history. It's like, how, how can I be the most useful writer possible? And I, I didn't think that, that you know, writing a, a, an American realist play was going to be the most useful thing for me to do with my skills. So I was like, okay, well, I want to start being an international journalist. Um, and so I, I basically knocked on the doors of a bunch of journalists and I was like, how do you do this? Like, what, how does, how does one do any of this? And who'd you talk to? Um, I talked to a, a couple of people who were uh, reporting in, I think it was Israel and um, a couple of Middle Eastern journalists. This was like over 10 years ago now. Uh -huh. um, but basically a lot of the, the feedback that I got from them was just like, just go, you know, just, just, right. just go and start reporting and, and, you know, at this time, uh, Syria was was the, the the crisis that that everybody was was writing about, and I had some understanding of of Turkey, and I was like, well, it it seems like a reasonable thing to do to to go uh, go throughout Turkey and just try and get some some stories sold. Um, but of course, meanwhile, like I had to save up some money to like you know go <laughs> go write in Turkey for a little bit. Um, so I, I got myself a job as like, uh, the head camp counselor to summer camp in Boston. 
and because uh, I, I, you know, in the Peace Corps, I had education training, mm-hmm. and and then I, I worked in special ed for a little bit. So you know, I could I can I can run a summer camp. Okay. I can I can tell people to tie their shoes and <laughs> and, and stop running. Boy, boy, can I really prepared Hard me for work, man? Prepared me for war zones, man. Mm. Really, I've seen I've seen some some shit you wouldn't believe. Yeah, some yeah. literal shit. I, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah. So while I'm while I'm at the summer camp in Boston, um, I'm kind of like you know getting my ducks in a row, and I have this this whole trip planned out where I'm going to work my way down to to the border of Turkey and 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 Syria, and I'm and I'm kind of you know considering. Um, how I want to how how I want to write about this kind of stuff, and and I'm realizing that, well, in a certain way, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of good-hearted journalists and and especially Western journalists who are going into these places um, to you know cover conflict, um, but sometimes that also ends up with them in the way of conflict and and potentially making a dangerous situation for them, mm. making a dangerous situation for other reporters on the ground. And so since I was just sort of starting out and learning to write from these areas, I was like, I don't really want to talk about the conflict directly. I wanted to write about stuff that was on the side of it. I wanted to to uh, to maybe write human interest stories about yeah. things that were not getting covered because right. the war was the story. That's always the most interesting stuff. Because That's what I thought. Everybody yeah. focuses on like the big thing. Yeah, and, and it's like, I think that, um, you know, warfare... Uh, as it, as it is now, uh, as it probably always is, is like it's so it's so fascinating to people, and it it gobbles up so much of the news cycle that mm. it's easy for people to forget that there are just you know real people having normal days and and you know struggling through life and you know getting up and cooking eggs for their kids and and complaining about work, even though a couple miles down the road there's you know bombs going off mm-hmm. and i thought i think that that sort of you know parallel universes are, are pretty interesting to me yeah parallel universes subcultures and the fact that like they can just exist right next door to you and and you would never know um i've always found that that kind of thing that, fascinating yeah that is that, that is very fascinating that's what you know that's what i like that's some of like the best documentaries that i find on right on youtube or stuff that like when people are just like picking up rocks and looking under rocks and finding the things that like no one's shined a light on before and like even if they just follow like a small group of people and how what their lives are like you know it's maybe affected by like the bigger picture whether it be a war or a genocide or something like that but just like seeing how their lives are did you ever see you may have even called it out on the show or had him as a guest but did you ever see love and saucers yeah, yeah. I had the guy who made that documentary in here. Incredible, incredible work. I mean, it's like that's the, beautiful. That was a beautifully shot film, hundred percent. And I thought it was it was incredible because it's like one where we're taking the Brad sub- Brad Abrams. That's his name. That's right. I've heard him on a couple of different things, and it's like takes the subject so seriously. Like he's not, you know, sort of like there's no there's no snickering at the subject. Um, you know, this is uh, so. For those of you who don't know, like uh, Love and Saucers is is uh, it's a documentary about this this guy who feels that he had a, uh, a relationship with an alien or throughout his lost entire... his virginity to an alien. Correct, and then he is a painter, so he like kept painting this alien for basically his entire life. And does he live in like Brooklyn or something? Yeah, in Brooklyn. Yeah. And so like, it's like I don't know if it's Brooklyn, but it's somewhere around there. Yeah. So then it was like his first art show, and and like. You, you know, these are the neighbors that you pass in the street every day. Like mm. people are are 
quietly involved in in their own galaxies and you know it's it's amazing if you ask the right question you can you can turn the key and and suddenly like be involved in that mm-hmm. um so that that has always been like you know these are the best stories as far as i'm concerned that's one of those things that you know that i think about too is like that guy like that guy truly believed that happened to him yeah like if you watch that movie right. it's like a 30 minute movie he truly believes that happened to him. I mean, he talks about every little detail and paints all these beautiful pictures of these like hybrid human aliens that like t- took him into the woods and fucked him. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like the 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 alien had real human tits. Yeah. Like, a real nice set of tits on yeah. it. And like the large-breasted alien was the like large-breasted a alien prominent figure of that film. He impregnated the alien and gave him babies. Yep. Or gave he gave her babies. And like man, years like, ago I was doing I was doing a, a story that was killed. Sadly, I was doing a, a thing about about UFOs, and I went to like these three different UFO things in, yeah. in Los Angeles, and I went to this like abductee uh, support group um, that happened like randomly every you know every like third Saturday in Marina del Rey, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was and it was just like in a random strip mall. And for some reason, I had to like pay five dollars to go into a support group. But I think it was because like some you know f- uh, fancy alien guy was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what his name was, but he fancy alien guy. That's great. He was he was the dude who was like the one of the leading experts in like removing alien implants. Um, okay. But he was a podiatrist, and shockingly, every implant that he removed was from the foot. Hmm. Um. Anyway, I saw him talk. Um. But like. You know, people would get up and they they would sort of say their piece. And at a certain point, you know, somebody was like, "Okay, well, how many people have been abducted in this room?" And you know, it's a room of like maybe eighty people. And I figured, you know, twelve hands would go up. And then it's like, I was the weird one because, like, I I mean, you know, uh, at this point, I have not yeah. been abducted by an alien. Right. Still, still to this day. My working theory on alien. Have you, you're familiar with John Mack? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, my working theory on the alien abduction thing is that some people. A specific, like a certain percentage, maybe one percent or less of the human population, has like something, uh, uh, an advanced version of their brain. Some people think it's the basal ganglia Mm-mm. that lets them tap in to like another dimension a little bit. Like they, yeah. they're able to receive signals, right? Like 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 similar to a radio antenna where they can somehow receive signals from elsewhere sometimes. Like when you think of some people who talk about they see ghosts or like they see certain things, whether they're ghosts or not, or aliens. Like I think that might be something when you're talking about this guy, uh, David Huggins, the, the old guy who talked about uh, fucking the aliens. That's right, yeah. I think it that <laughs> might be what it is. It might be something in their brain that they're actually experiencing. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's real from another dimension or if it's all just hallucinations in their mind. Or it's like it's like the whole DMT thing. Like yeah. when you take DMT and you go to that that world with the dancing, yeah, the, the machine elves, elves machine or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when you go there, like are those elves real or are they in your head? But look at reality. Yeah. Reality is all in your head. It's all a construct of your senses. So that's, that's the, that's kind of like how I think about it right now. That's my working theory. Your, your, your brain is, is a reality generating machine. And, and then on top of that, or, or sometimes like, you know, the, the, the pathway in is like, you know, what are the things that you really believe? Um, And, and it's amazing how, 
like something as ephemeral as like what you believe it has real world effects Mm -hmm. you know like that guy believed that he had a hybrid alien child like try and convince him that he's wrong uh this is not that dissimilar from somebody in an unrecognized nation or somebody in a recognized nation saying you know this place still exists like we're no matter what's no matter what you tell me um i like this is the best country in the world i have a you know an absolute religious belief about this thing Mm. and and one of the things that i find fascinating is how that that abstraction can be leveraged to to change how people behave you know um obviously (laughs) believing in aliens and believing in countries are totally different things um but there is this this human mechanism for generating beliefs about how their realities work that is is one it's able to be manipulated and and two it's it's deeply important to us collaborating with one another Mm. you know because like when when i was at the alien abductee uh like support group you know afterwards honestly i think the most fascinating part about the whole thing was like afterwards like all of these alien abductees went out to denny's together and it's like that's awesome yeah i and i'm like I, i i felt myself like so sort of like glad for them that like these people could like hang out and have a moons over Miami and like talk about their abduction experiences. <laughs> like, you know, they have community and and they had this shared lexicon and and that, you know, was able to to bring them together. Like it may not make sense for for all of us. That's fine. But like they were certainly like together in their own belief structure. Mm. Um after after that thing, I I went up. Man, you get some wild stuff in Meetup.com. Uh, um, yeah, uh, it, cheaper than a movie. Just go into the depths of Meetup.com and you'll really? find some. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I went to an alien summoning from Meetup.com. Okay, summoning. Summoning. Yeah, I learned how Where to summon. Where was this? Uh, it was a park in uh, in Los Angeles, and and now when you're imagining a, a UFO summoning, are you thinking about it at night? Probably noon really in july very hot day um and so i walked up i i, I pulled my buddies along with me to to this thing so i was like guys we're you more people to show up at noon well it's just like guys we're gonna go to an alien summoning so did you film it no i didn't oh, I, okay. I, yeah I'm, I'm i'm a i'm a writer i'm not technical oh, right, at all right, right, right. um but uh we i showed up and you know, there's there's a lot more people there than I thought it was going to be. It was like maybe like 30, 40 people in this park. Uh, really hot day. And um, I, you know, I, I was always just like pretty honest about people. I'm like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm working on a project here. And then they're like, oh, great. That's awesome. Uh, you should talk to our, our science lead. And I'm like, okay, cool. Who, who's the science lead? And they're like, that's Hans. And so this guy named Hans comes over. Um, and, uh, and he's like, oh, I got to show you the, the, the book of, of UFOs. And I was like, okay, sweet. Let's look at the book of UFOs. And he like opened up these, this, like a bunch of like pixelated, highly pixelated photos. And he was like, see that that's a balloon. That's not a UFO, but that is a UFO. And then you just flip the page and be like balloon UFO. And then you flip the page and he'd be like, that's a UFO p- pretending to be a balloon. And I'm like, Hans, what kind of doctor are you? He's like, I'm a dentist. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm having, I'm having less confidence in this summoning. And, and he's like, we'll just wait for the summoner to get here. I'm like, okay, sweet. 
he's going to teach everybody how to how to summon. So I was like, well, this sounds this sounds great. No, you know, that's a that's a skill. That's <laughs> a little bit better than a theater major. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody in the park kind of comes up around this this summoner um, the summoner, and uh, he's like, okay, this is a three step process. I'm like, okay, sweet. And he's like, first you pick a point in the sky. Everybody just you know. 40, 30 people just like in the middle of a park in July, just like looking at this guy. And he's like, okay, now telepathically bring aliens to you. And then you just repeat that until they come. I was like, step two should have had more steps, I feel. <sighs> like it was, I'm like, and and like, you know, you you got to try. So right. you're just like standing in a field with like all of these people just sort of staring at the sky. And then eventually somebody will just say like, Oh, there's one, there's one. And then the crowd will just like rush over to somewhere else in the field and like point at something in the sky. And everybody's just like trying to like, you know, see whatever they're seeing. And then mm-hmm. it would happen again somewhere else. And it's like, I, I have no idea. I didn't, I mean, I, did you see anything? I have no idea. I, 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 uh, Nothing that I would define define as UFO, right? And and to add insult to injury, there was definitely a birthday party going on in the park, and like some <laughs> balloons totally flew away. Um, and I was like, I realized that that had happened. I'm like, I I think it's probably probably time to go home from the summoning. Yeah, but it's like you know, convince those people that that they're wrong. Like, no, they're like that's that's their it, clearly it's their community, and it's it's yes. also something that they feel passionate about, and it's it gives them some kind of place and understanding in the universe Mm -hmm. right um literally the universe for them um and i mean uh, who am i to to tell them that that's that's not a real thing um right yeah there's some wacky people out there man Mm -hmm. and you know that it's they're beneficial to the government when they want to uh cover up or use false information to to either cover up real stories yeah or push narratives that they want they can uh easily use these people as like a uh well it's like you know one of the one of the things that i always think about with like um with these sort of like broad sweeping movements like and especially how how media often works is like you the the loudest voices are generally like not the most informed voices yes right and they're the most extreme exactly like uh, you know uh not to get super political but like the image that we have of january 6th is who like the QAnon shaman like it's the dude with exactly the dude with horns on his head yeah um you know pitch perfect um and and when you have this image to collect an entire group of people under, you know, oh, it's like, oh, you're going to be like that mm-hmm. crazy person. Then it becomes really easy to discount anything that that might be a legitimate complaint on either side. Yeah. And and I, I have always like that's that's one of the reasons that I, I always that I thought it was interesting to genuinely go to places to find out what's actually happening on the ground. Um because there's only so much information that we get in the United States. Um, and and oftentimes it's so salacious. It's so sort of filled with with fear and with um, with anger that it's hard to understand that there are there are real people who are are actually living lives in these places. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was kind of the goal when I when I wanted to go to Turkey in the first place um, was to to find maybe some of the more quiet stories um, mm. and uh, 
And then I didn't end up going to Turkey because they had a coup. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So this is back during, um, I can't remember what year it was. Was it 2016? Must have been. I thought it was more recent than that. No? Mm. Was this the fake coup? I have no idea if it was fake or not. It was a, it was a, um, uh, I, I, I know that they had, uh, while I was while I was working on the uh, working at the summer camp, there uh, there was this <laughs> like you know telling kids not to run and like listening to reports about how there were like tanks in the street of of Ankara and, and yeah. Istanbul. Um, and at that point, I was like, well, shit, like I have a ticket to I have a ticket to Istanbul pretty soon, and I didn't quite know uh, what I should do with that because mm-hmm. I was like this, you know, I, I specifically didn't want to put myself into uh, into a situation where where I'd be a liability for the community, or right. um, like that I would I would get myself like, you know, in uh, into a situation that I couldn't get out of just because I was trying to learn how to be a journalist. Mm. And so I was uh, I was talking with my folks about it. My my dad is was uh, close with this this geopolitical forecaster guy. Um, I'll call him Frank. Uh, oh, your dad was close with him. Yeah, yeah, he was okay. close with him. Uh, well, they were like pen pals. He was like, I like your geopolitics. And then the guy was like, thanks, I'm going to keep I like it. your geopolitics. That is like the That's most, a great compliment. It's like the most dad compliment ever. <laughs> like, everybody's dad, once they get old enough, they're like, you know, I really like the either the Civil War or World War Two, or my dad is World War One. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, he's mad stoked on geopolitics. Okay. So your dad introduced you to Frank. Yeah, he introduced me to Frank. And he's like, well, why don't you write Frank and, and, and see what Frank says? And so I wrote him, and uh, I had heard that Frank thought this was a terrible idea. And I was like, okay, well. He I thought wrote, what was a terrible idea? Me going to Turkey. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, uh, hey, Frank, it's me, Eric. Um, uh, I hear you think it's a bad idea for me to go to Turkey. So I still want to like learn to write about the Middle East and, and you know, what's going on. And I kind of had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something about travel. Um, and uh, I was thinking about maybe trying to do like a non-political travel log of the Middle East, which I realized immediately was fucking impossible. <laughs> it's like that's like trying to write like Moby Dick without ever using the word whale or like <laughs> the letter A. Um, so I was like, told him, you know, these ideas. And then he wrote me back and he was like, well, here's why you're going to end up in Turkish prison and, uh, you're not going to make it. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. Well, if you look back to my first letter, I said, what should I do? Mm -hmm. And then Frank was like, okay, go to Lebanon and I'll coach you. And I was like, okay. I mean, I don't know what that means. I've never met this old man. Um, but sure, yeah, I'll buy a plane ticket to Lebanon and have this old man coach me. Mm-hmm. Why not? So I, I bought a plane ticket with my, my summer camp money uh, to go to Beirut, and I was there for like a month. And uh, so I was like, you know, got to Beirut to my hostel, and <laughs> I was like starting to freelance stories, and uh, and I emailed Frank, and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm here. What do I do? And he's like, okay, well, you got to go meet this uh, meet this man. And he'll send a car for you. And I was like, okay. Wow. Great. This guy was connected. Yeah, I mean, maybe. <clears throat> it seemed like it. I was mm-hmm. just, I was just, you know, an eager beaver with a laptop. So I would just like go and, and like, m- I just like went and met a random car outside of a place called Burj Hamoud in, in Beirut. Mm-hmm. And guy waved me down. He didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Arabic or French. And, and uh, you know, we start driving on the outside of town. And I'm like, this, like, it's at that point I was like, 
this might have been a poor choice for me. Sorry to interrupt, but this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Verso. We all know how important it is to get the right amount of nutrition, exercise, and sleep as we age. It's something I'm really passionate about and have discussed at length with doctors and nutritional scientists on this podcast. That is why I use Verso. Verso is a company dedicated into translating scientific breakthroughs into products that hold the potential to increase longevity. I take cell being every day to help combat aging by increasing my NAD levels with powerful ingredients such as NMN, transresveratrol, and TMG. NAD plus is arguably one of the most powerful molecules in the body, but declines with age. Keeping NAD plus levels high helps guide longevity genes called sirtuins. Sirtuins are called longevity genes because by activating them, they support overall health and slow down aging related effects by regulating important processes inside of cells. High NAD plus levels can improve your metabolism, repair damaged DNA, and ramp up energy production in your brain, immune system, and muscles. Now you can't take NAD plus as a supplement because it's too big for the cells to absorb. But NMN directly converts to NAD plus, while resveratrol activates your sirtuins, which increases their attraction for NAD. These two molecules act synergistically and increase your NAD plus more than just NMN on its own. Verso also publishes third-party testing from each batch produced to absolutely guarantee you're getting what you pay for. Head on over to VER.SO and use the coupon code CONCRETE at checkout to save 15% off your entire order. Or go to VER.SO forward slash K-O-N-C-R-E-T-E right now. It's linked below. Now back to the show. Like I'm already like five minutes in the car and at that point, I'm like, hmm, I this might have been an error of judgment. Mm, um, that was the point of no return. Yeah, it was. But then he ended up dropping me off at this this you know uh, this office park in a place called Junet, and uh, I went into this office, and the guy was like, "Oh, you're from Frank, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm definitely from Frank." And then he's like, "Well, so how is he?" And I'm like, "He's he's good." He's really good. And he's like, okay, have a seat. And I'm like, great. So guy turned out to be a counterterrorism expert. And he was just like talking about counterterrorism, specifically the Islamic State at the time. Um, Did he work for any agencies? I have no idea. Okay. He was just a guy in an office. Okay. <laughs> just taking notes. And at a certain point, he was like, do you have enough? I'm like, mm-hmm, totally. Yes, I do. I have enough for Frank. And then driver took me back. And I was like, well, that was strange. And then the next day, like not the next day, probably like a week later, I went to go meet like a political scientist at the American University of Beirut and sort of same thing happened. How's Frank? He's good. Mm. How's his wife? I'm like, I didn't know he had a wife, but she's great. <laughs> she's doing good. Um, so chatted with him for a long time. And then the final interview was a guy who identified himself as a Lebanese general, still have no idea. Um, and we talked about the Islamic State for a bit. And then he kind of sent me on my way. And then I was like, well, this was a strange trip yeah. through Beirut. And, um, you know, I got some articles published, met some good people. Um, and eventually I was like, hey, I, I want to keep like learning about this stuff and writing about this stuff. So like, what do I do now? And Frank was like, OK, well, I'm going to I'm going to train you to be a, a geopolitical, um, geopolitical, geopolitical forecaster. Um, and so you're going to you're going to go through my training. I was like, cool. And and then, you know, I got an email that day. I was like, intelligence analyst position. Ooh, intelligence I know. analyst. I which, know, which tells you, like, I would be the worst spy because immediately as soon as I got that email, I was like, you know what I am? <laughs> hey, mom, guess what? <laughs> you know who's an intelligence analyst? Don't tell anybody. Yeah, right. Um, 
So, but I mean, ultimately, like what the work sort of boiled down to was like being a really advanced news reader, right? So mm. he he sort of trained us to have this working model of of the world, and you you break that down into whatever the constraints and imperatives of major nation states are. And by major, I mean the people who sort of wield the dominant economic, military, um, okay. social media powers, right? right? And so every nation has a certain amount of imperatives, things they have to do, things that they're forced to do. Um, and then they're constrained by certain things. So, I mean, you know, using the United States as an example, it's like, well, the imperative is to uh, maintain the ability to project power across the Atlantic and the Pacific simultaneously. Um, constraint might be something like um, dwindling middle class. So economically, we might not be able to support that power projection over a certain amount of time. And so you can start to look at how a nation will behave based upon what their imperatives are and what their constraints might be. And what that ends up making is a, a model of the world where you have, uh, as he termed them, fault lines and flashpoints. So certain areas of the world where there might be this tectonic shift of power where there, there are these areas that if something is going to change the power relationships in the world, a flashpoint, it will happen there. So an example of this might be, um, you know, the, uh, the Bab al-Mandab, um, which is, is near the, the Gulf of Aden. So this is a big power corridor that uh, it's where I think it's, you know, last I heard it was like 60% of the world's oil travels wow. through uh, to, uh, to the Red Sea. Um, so, yeah, huge, it, it, like, important choke point for energy. So, so you're talking about, like, countries' ambitions mm. and what they're trying to do and what the downside of that ambition is. So, like, an example would be, would that, like, if you relate that to America, us mm. spending trillions of dollars on the military and the dwindling mi middle class is what takes the the downside of that. Like, our yeah. we, our road, we don't we have roads with potholes, but we're spending $16 trillion a year on the military. Yeah, so we're, we're uh, it's it's less, um it's less the <clears throat> things that are blocking us, but the uh, the things that are, yeah, like holding us back, right? Holding so we're, okay. we're constrained by, you know, um, if we have a dwindling middle class, that also means that we have a dwindling tax base to pay into, okay. you know, uh, okay. military adventurism. Got it. Um, and so, and, you know, some, uh, in fact, a, a good deal of of like geopolitical constraint is actually just damn geography. Um, you know, it's it's incredibly hard to fight a war in Afghanistan as as right. history has told us constantly, and it's just because there's so many damn mountains. Like it's Alexander the Great was mm -hmm. turned back, Napoleon, mm -hmm. Russia, the and United we, States. We, we have the best geography, right? Well, I mean, best according to what, right? War. Like more because we're surrounded by the two the two oceans. Yeah, so we've got. I mean, we we have um, like I can't remember which geopolitical guy called it this, but but the, he he called the United States this sort of the idea of this inevitable empire, right? And the idea was that we have we have so many natural features that make us highly defensible. Um, you know, you've got the, the Appalachian, Appalachian, I don't, I, I'd say Appalachian yeah. from California. Um, oh, we have the, those mountains over there. We've got, um, uh, this robust system of, of arable land and rivers, which allows for incredible amounts of agriculture to happen right in the center of our country, which is obviously highly defensible, huge lakes on top of us, a damn desert beneath us, 
Rocky Mountains bracketing everything. So invading the United States is a genuinely like insane thing to right, do. Right. Um we're also all super heavily armed. So right. <laughs> like yet right. another reason. <laughs> right. I think it I, I can't remember who it was. I actually meant to look this uh look this up, but I think it might have been Lincoln. Um but he he said I'm not even going to attribute it was some some early president uh, uh, who either had a powdered wig or a really cool beard um, said something about the fact that um, because the United States was so blessed geographically, the the death of the U.S. as a nation would never come from outside, that it would always that it would be by suicide. I can't wow. remember who said that, but maybe you can find that quote goes hard. That Super. is a hard quote. Yeah, I know. That's Man, like, it sounds like it seems like what's going on in the last couple of years. Internal division, uh, uh, yeah. Internal division is is another constraint. It's a it's a geopolitical constraint. Mm. But you you know in in a society that presumably permits and encourages freedom, you have to tolerate an amount of internal division. But as as you divide away the the singular vision of a nation, then suddenly there's conflict that arises within it. Um, you know, everything is is ultimately a trade off. Yeah. And What's who that? was it? Was it? Oh, hell yeah! It, it was him. Yeah. America will never be destroyed from the outside. Oh, oh. Continue shit. with Facebook, <laughs> said Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> if we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. Wow. Lincoln. Damn. Abraham. Bars. Dude, I know. They, they they don't they don't give give uh, Lincoln credit for for Dude. his his sick flow. Have you have you seen that recent video of all those guys pledging allegiance to Trump? It was like two days ago. That doesn't surprise me, but no, it is terrifying. Man. It looks like a it's like a a giant warehouse, and they're lined what? up. They're lined up. Where's the, here's the video? Look at this. No, what? I. This was a MAGA thing. Oh, and that they, is. They, they did this as Trump was in, like going into court. What? I, I have questions about this warehouse. Like, where's the warehouse? Uh, close out of it. See if you can see some. Find some more context of on the tweet. I'm just like, is there, is there like a, a Kmart next door? <laughs> like, yeah, maybe. They've I got. I can't read. It's too small. But yeah, man, that's that's fucking crazy. That's ins- uh, But this, this, so this is exactly the thing that 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 like. I, I find so fascinating about about the idea of of nationalism because nationalism is this this huge abstraction and and you know what your nation is is something that's collectively generated by the people within the nation right like how you believe about whatever America is somehow gels with how every other American thinks about America and that creates the picture of our country right. It's something that we're all generating together. Mm-hmm. But when you have such radically different visions of what that is, then suddenly you can see a bifurcation of, of the nation. Or you can even see, sometimes the, they use the term of balkanization um, mm-hmm. in reference to the Balkans, right. where it's like it, it's almost a shattering into, into various person groups right. because people are aligning with whoever they feel their affinity group is. Mm. And I mean, 
you know, tell the, the, the thing that I find fascinating, terrifying about this is, is that it's verging on a religious belief. Yes. Like this is a religious belief. Yes. And I think that, that people need to continually check themselves as like, is my belief well-founded or is it a religious one? And, and the best sort of like rule of thumb for religious beliefs has always been to me anyway, do I know what information could be provided to me that would make me change my mind, right? So if I say, you know, I, I believe in gravity, you know, I, right. I use it every day, uh, haven't, haven't floated once. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, pretty convinced. But if, you know, somebody is to, to come floating over to me and be like, ah, oh, gravity's bullshit, man. I'd be like, man, that's pretty compelling. Yeah. Like, yeah. Dude, so, so it's like you can have certainty to a certain extent, but at the point that you're saying, no, absolutely not to these facts, right. absolutely not to reality on the ground, mm. then you have a religious belief. Then the thing that's powering you is faith and your own personal identity. Mm -hmm. Your own personal identity is so involved in right. what you think that you can be manipulated dramatically. What was the quote you said? You said uh, the number one revolutionary in the revolution becomes the staunchest conservative the day after the revolution. That's right. Yeah. Because now they own the state. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, it's like people when. I, and I think that there's this sort of romanticized idea of 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 revolution in that respect too. It's like and and, and you know there's the there's the sort of musical theater version of of mm -hmm. you know dude waving a flag and and right. you know then suddenly everybody's equal. But the question is equal according to who, right? So yeah. the 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 revolutionary the day after the revolution now controls what equality is. Now they right. control what freedom is. They're controlling what the abstraction is, mm. and so. We're, if we're all going to agree on this consensus reality, how are we going to generate that consensus? And that's that's ultimately what statecraft is about. Is I I, I don't know if definitely not Lincoln, but somebody said <laughs> <laughs> I can't just keep leaning on Lincoln this whole time. Um, but somebody said that that you know statecraft is all about it's the 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 generation of consent by the governed, right? And so there's a lot of ways to generate consent amongst the governed. Like right now, we're we're the governed, you know, in, in the United States anyway. So somebody can come in this room and, and put a gun to our heads and, and you know, make us participate in a, a phony voting, you know, mm -hmm. uh, charade. Mm -hmm. Cool. Do they have our consent? Well, yeah, I don't want to get shot. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, super, you do have my consent. Yeah. Um, another way to do it and the way that at least we in the United States have settled upon doing it is uh, through representative government and representative government is is how we uh, go about you know doing the tasks of governance which is identifying problems creating paths to solving those problems and then enacting those those solutions right mm -hmm. um, but the belief in the United States is that if we sort of crowdsource the idea for how best to move forward as a nation then we'll come up with not only a better solution, but it will be fully supported by everybody who gave their opinion on that thing. Now, that's mm -hmm. the ideal version of it. Whether it works that way or not, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, uh, the most, some of the most successful countries, you know, monetarily um, 
and military power wise right now are certainly not democracies right you know they're they're autocracies right and yeah andy bustamante explained this to me beautifully in this uh this diagram he calls the creation of a state pyramid where he says the bot the foundational yeah, explain level. that so yeah so he says the foundation of the pyramid the bottom level of the pyramid is individualism mm. and that's basically whatever i hunt i eat um every man for himself yeah the second level is tribalism and that's where four eight or 12 of us were a tribe i may be a good hunter you may be a good gatherer uh i go out and hunt the food you you have your garden and we share in our resources, right? I can't go into your house, club you over the head and drag your wife out because we have these rules, right? Cause we're this own little, we're a little, a little tribe. So we've given up certain freedoms, right? I can't just go take your wife. Above that is the creation of a state where there's a governing body or a people that you elect to basically run this nation or state or whatever. And that could be a, collection of resources like taxes to have so you have clean water you have food that's safe to eat you have electricity and basically what he was getting at is that we have to be okay with giving up certain freedoms yeah for for everything that we have and we were talking about the context of the conversation started out talking about snowden mm. and talking about like privacy and stuff like that he's like i'm willing to i'm willing to his position on this which I'm kind of coming around to, but I don't know what I feel about it. He said that he was okay with um, the government looking at the porn that I watch or like looking at my browser history, if it's going to keep us safe from terrorists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, this is, I, I, I think the uh, uh, sometimes called like the, uh, the neo Hobbesian point of view. Right. Mm. So the, the, the whole Hobbes thing is like, you know, man is in his natural state is, is, you know, this sort of feral creature that, that, you know, just loves to, to kill and rape. And, <laughs> and then we, as we sort of ascend this, this pyramid, um, things get better because we are able to sublimate these natural tendencies towards violence into the state we we give the oh. state the monopoly on violence mm -hmm. so that we can have order right um and you know th that certainly makes sense um but the it, it's kind of like the who who watches the watchmen type of thing yeah. right and it's like how much how much transparency one, do you want? And two, are you comfortable with? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think one of the things he said was, uh, he asked me if I had kids. And I was like, yeah. He's like, do you tell your kids everything you do? I've, I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah. I was like, no. He's like, yeah, because you're trying to protect them. Right. But now that I have like the ability to like watch it and listen to it, and I'm like, it's not the government's job to be my parent, right? right. It's supposed to be for the people, by the people. Like in the ser They're supposed to be the servants to us. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the abstraction, right? Yes. Like that's, that's like, it, it's like, I'm sure you've, you've probably seen, um, uh, seen a video of, of somebody on YouTube being, you know, yelling at a cop being like, I pay your salary. How well does that go? <laughs> right. I don't imagine it ever goes good. It rarely, it, yeah. yeah. At no point is, is, you know, the, the, the police officer who's mm. the sort of like emissary of the state at that point. Right. Like, oh man, I, <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, that, that like yes that that person certainly believes that mm -hmm. but in point of fact is that actually happening i mean not if they end up in handcuffs and with a black eye right 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 um 
I mean, it's that's that to me is the 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 fascinating thing about about statecraft in general is like how how do different places navigate this way of creating consent amongst the governed? Um, because it, it's it's a cultural issue. It's a uh, it's a geographic issue. It's a historical issue. Um, so I live in Albania. I live in in Toronto, Albania, because um, uh, you know after Peace Corps I just went pro, um, and uh, and so I've lived there for like on and off for for probably about four four years altogether. Wow. And at a certain point, I was I was in an Albanian art gallery. I was looking at old uh, uh, pieces of artwork and and paintings, and a lot of it is this sort of like Soviet realist stuff because Albania was was uh, one of the world's first atheist state um, because religion was outlawed there for fifty years, mm. um, and two it was under sort of brutal brutal North Korean style dictatorship under a guy named Enver Hoxha. Um, but one of the things that I found really interesting was in a lot of the Albanian paintings, most of the Albanian paintings, the people with rifles were never painted pointing their rifles up. They were always painted pointing them either straight or down. And I started thinking about that and because I, I think of, you know, Western statues and, and artwork that I've seen in the United States. And then I realized, well, Albania is a mountainous country. People weren't pointing their rifles up. They were pointing their rifles down when they were defending against the Ottoman Empire. Oh, wow. And so the geography determined a lot about how the governmental structure ended up, the geography and the culture. Um, you know, even though the, the Balkan Peninsula is sort of full of all of these Slavic languages and Slavic people, Albanians are not Slavic. Their language is not Slavic. It forms its own branch of the Indo-European language tree. And they're also surrounded by mountains. So isolationism seemed to be this, this you know, way of generating consent amongst the governed there because they were already not only geographically isolated, but they're culturally isolated. And so in the United States, we have, you know, uh, this sort of frontier culture because for the dominant part of our history, we were moving west until we ran out of west to move, right? So the geography determined who ended up being most successful and then who ended up generating the culture that was propagated throughout our our country right interesting you know you can tell a lot about a country based upon the people that are their heroes you know i mean who, who are some american heroes like mm -hmm. when you when you think about like the people that that individuals point to and say it's like oh that's that's an american hero right there right probably people with guns yeah either that or or people who are like it's like you know people who are leading freedom movements you know martin right. luther king jr right martin yep yep john wayne mm, john i was gonna say john wayne yeah yeah he's uh, i feel like he's the main one <laughs> right yeah or people die or people who died rosa parks you know john f kennedy people who are going their own way like yeah. we we and i i don't i think that that goes you know, we in the United States and, and I mean, for every country, it's hard to see the water that you swim in. Um, and so we don't we take for granted what a um, an individualistic culture we are. Um, there's a, certainly Albania is a more collectivist culture. And that's mm -hmm. not just because of of. Uh, the fact that that communism was was you know deeply embedded in their history, mm. but it's it's because you know their their family units are remarkably. Is that Hillary Clinton? No, it is. <laughs> what? Oh no! What that am I like, looking at here? It's more like Bill. Random crap that showed up. 
Uh, Googling American heroes and looking at photos. Oh, look at all those American heroes. Look at all these powdered wigs. Yeah. Einstein. Einstein was not American. Not. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was, one, as far as I know, <laughs> might have to go check in history about that. Oh, that's hilarious. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like, where did we get off to? Um, talking about oh, American Lebanon. Lebanon. Well, no, I want to go back. I want, yeah, you were in Lebanon. What were you talking about? We were, you were in Lebanon and... Uh, yeah, I was in Beirut. I was just Frank, reading... Oh, oh, ge geopolitics. Frank was like, come back and yeah. be an intelligence analyst. Yeah, so I did that. Um, <laughs> it was... I was actually... By the way, Frank is a pseudonymous name. It is a pseudonymous name. Um, and if you Google around about me, you'll figure out who it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You did an amazing podcast. Who was the guy's podcast you did? Uh, Chris Ryan, yeah, shout out. And Chris Ryan said he was going to fuck Frank's wife. So. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so much for keeping it pseudonymous. Jesus. <laughs> there that goes. Uh, I'm going to be dead by that noon. Was <laughs> nice knowing you, Danny. Um, uh, if my book comes out, uh, You're Not Here, Travels to Countries That Don't Exist, and I Died, I hope it sells well. You're Not Here, Travels Through Countries That Don't Exist. Um, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can cut that out if you want no, me to. I'd appreciate it. No, I, I don't know. Keep it in if you like it. Um so uh yeah so uh, you're working for him now i so i'm I'm working for him um and basically it entails being a, a just a, a very detailed news reader yeah um so what a working day is like i had to get up really early in the morning so i was up at like four in the morning i was living in los angeles at this point in an art colony which is a very weird place to be a, a, a intelligence analyst an art colony yeah a brewery art colony and and he's brewery art colony dude it's like uh, it's like uh the musical rent but like so much dirtier wow yeah um it was uh it was cool like you get like a big old big old art warehouse and then it's like you know build your own walls and and you know do do really really edgy artwork yeah you, know, you all say fuck a lot <laughs> Los Angeles is a strange place. Yeah, man. Almost as strange as Miami, but not quite. I've never been to Miami. What? So yeah, I've never been. Oh my god. Yeah, I. Uh, it's I, such a great place. I literally. It, it's so close to the U.S. <laughs> I, I'm, I like I. I just went to like my memory, and I was like, "What do I know about Miami?" And like, I think a Pitbull music video just started mm -hmm. playing. And and that's it. That's all I know about Miami, really. It's crazy. Totally different animal than, totally than different animal. out here. The traffic is almost as bad as LA. It might be worse sometimes. I guess it's depending on the time of day, but it is very similar to LA. It takes yeah. two hours to get to drive two miles. Yeah. Um, Sounds about right. And everybody is Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> this must be great sandwiches and awesome cars. Be beautiful, beautiful women, great cars, lots of rich people, yeah. lots of great food. But just so many people packed into this tiny place. It's a great place to go. It's a great place to go for like a day or two. That's not at all the... the well, I, I mean, like I said, my stereotype is literally only Pitbull music videos and, uh -huh. and Big Willie style. Okay. That is the... Uh, so anything outside of a music video, I, I have no concept <laughs> you of. You gotta go, man. All I the places should. you've been, you've never been to fucking Miami? I, this is the first time I've been to Florida, oh man. My, yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. I, I honestly, Welcome. I haven't explored the U.S. that much. I, I've spent okay. most of, most of the last 10 years, you know, in, in well, in unrecognized countries. Right, right. Um, Can't blame you. Yeah. Um, but when we were training, I went out to Texas, um, okay. which was like, so training and like, I don't know, I got an email and it was like, okay, you're coming out to training. And I was like, okay, sweet. It'll be like a weekend or something. And it was like a month. And I'm like, what? And like, I, it was like the three, no, it was, yeah, it was three other people that I was training with. Mm -hmm. 
you know, to be a, an analyst. Um, I feel like I should do this the entire time. I mean, <laughs> honestly. Air quotes. <laughs> yeah, air quotes. I was, I was, a, I was a, a very, very advanced news reader and future guesser. Um, but learned a lot, though. I mean, fascinating, fascinating work. Yeah. Um, but like we were, you know, me and three other strangers who turned out to be amazing. Um, shout out to Cheyenne, Xander, and Lawrence. Um, great people. So like we stayed in this like house in, in like suburbia outside of Austin. And every day we were just sort of like power learned geopolitics and like had to like read through this huge book about World War Two. And then, you know, we'd go over to Frank's ranch and, and be and he'd like hold globes at us and be like, This is the Philippines. And we're like, Oh, cool. And he's like, Well, it's a it's a bayonet going into China and like then tell us like all of the history of the Philippines and and what you know, America's geopolitical positioning around the Philippines was, and we were just like trying to pack as much geopolitical mm. knowledge into our heads as possible. And each one of us kind of got some area of the world to look at, right? And so the goal of that was to take as much open source information about that area, so publicly available information, um, and try to determine uh, based upon the ins- uh, the constraints and imperatives of that country, what might happen, um, what they might want to do stra- strategically, um, or or what might might occur to them, right? So, okay, I and you know after after uh, you know two whole weeks of of learning about geopolitics, I was like, yeah, my tinfoil hat was like firmly on. <laughs> I was like looking at Belarus and and just just dreaming about Alexander Lukashenko. <laughs> <laughs> At a certain point, I was just like, you know, Alexander Lukashenko doesn't think about me nearly as much as I think about him, um, which is a shame. And I was like, oh, okay, so you know, it's uh, like Russia uh, and and Belarus. They're they're like right now, anyway. They're like you know having this sort of weird war of words. Like, mm. I think Belarus was saying, you know, you're using us as a 10 million person human shield against you know uh, invasion from from NATO countries and mm. stuff like that. And then NATO was, or Russia was like, ah, shut up or something. I can't remember the, <laughs> that's the exact quote. Right. Vladimir Putin, shut up. Um, and so I was like, uh, I was, you know, talking to, uh, uh, to Frank about this and he's like, well, like, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, um, like, are they going to fight or whatever? He's like, no. I'm like, well, why aren't they? And he's like, research it until you find out why. And I was like, what? Okay. And so just kept reading more and more and then you find out that like the energy infrastructure of Belarus is like completely indivisible from Russian energy infrastructure um you know there there's oil there but it's it's unproven so it would take years and years for them to actually get that oil out of the ground so the constraint is they certainly can't break away from Russia they can't go they can't have a war with Russia so why are they having this public war of words and at that point, that's when real analysis happens is you're you're looking at what is actually going on when you know what the constraints and imperatives are. Okay. And so that was kind of the training area for me. Um, it was just like, oh, you know, write up a report about Belarus. Um, so so I wrote what up, was going on? What did you figure out? I don't remember, actually. Oh, okay. You know, nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the other great thing about uh, the one of the wonderful things about learning about, about you know, geopolitical uh, analysis is like most of the time 
the world is not burning down. Mm-hmm. Like most of the things don't mean a lot. Um, I had the the best example of this was um, one day a colleague of mine sent me um, an article about uh, I think it was Tajikistan and some guy had blown up in Tajikistan and uh, she was like, "What do you think of this?" So it was like one line email and I was like, mm-hmm. "Okay." So I started researching Tajikistan. I was researching it for a week and then uh, I was like, okay, well, you know, is there, is there some relationship with the Taliban? Is that happening? Are the, are they going through the Wakhan corridor? Like what's, mm-hmm. what it, it was, it, was it a bomb maker? And then it turned out it was like a science teacher who accidentally blew himself up <laughs> like that, that the, and it's like, yeah, sometimes people just accidentally blow themselves up. Sometimes stuff mm. just isn't that important and sometimes things are totally geopolitically irrelevant right um and depending on how you look at the world that can either be very comforting or very not because it could mean that nothing is is significant you shouldn't worry about anything or it could mean that the most mundane thing is deeply significant you should worry about everything right so i i mean for me anyway at that time when i was doing that work i was the opposite so as I was doing that work and, and in the book, um, I, I start out the book writing about this time that I was I was analyzing uh, an Islamic State beheading video. Mm-hmm. And I was like trying to I was trying to sort of like impress the boss. Why are you analyzing that video? So that video was was uh, it had it had cropped up um, at some point. Um, like it was I think it came out in, in the Islamic State magazine. It's called I think it was called Dabak. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, if it's just a regular video, them sort of talking about the normal stuff, you know, then it's probably geopolitically irrelevant and you can kind of toss it. Um, But this one specifically was in Farsi. Um, So it wasn't in Arabic. And the uh, people who were being beheaded were uh, in the uniforms anyway of uh, the popular mobilization units who are are Shia-backed or Iran-backed Shia militias that operate in Iraq. And so I was watching the video uh, to see if there was a way of determining that this was definitely an Islamic State message to Tehran, right? And as I was watching this thing and, you know, realizing that I was, I was finding myself becoming more and more paranoid and liking the world a whole lot less the more I studied war- warfare, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, go figure. Um, I was realizing that, that there's no way for me to actually determine this. Right. Because, yeah, like you can put those uniforms on anybody. You can put that insignia on anybody. Right. Um, so does it mean that something's going to happen tomorrow? Like is is the Islamic State going to roll some tanks into Iran or not tanks anyway? Like, you know, uh, <laughs> Toyota Hiluxes. <laughs> <laughs> like, are they going to they going to do that? Like, probably not. But it was like that was the only thing that I had to analyze that day. And. You know, you get on these cryptic phone calls and they're like, what do you have? And you have to like spit out this brief without like stumbling on a single world mm. word. And and by the end of the my brief, they were like, nope, that's irrelevant. Don't worry about it. So like I had, you know, in my art colony in Los Angeles, I'd spent the morning like watching beheading videos and it was, wasn't even seven in the morning yet. Oh, like God. my own, my coffee shop wasn't even open yet. Before you had your coffee, yeah. you people's heads get cut off. Yeah. And so like, I was like, and I was, I remember like looking at, at, you know, because I definitely had like, like I, I leaned into the stereotype, like I had a yarn wall in my room. It never really got to a yarn wall status. I bought yarn, but I never like put anything up that was like too arts and craftsy Damn for it. me. I know it. I know. I wish I had a picture of that. <laughs> um, 
But um, yeah, like I was looking at all the maps on the on the wall, and I'd done a lot of traveling before, and I love traveling, and I, I like I like liking the world. And I realized as I was looking at now, after you know a couple of months of just researching how the world was tearing itself apart, that I really not only didn't like the world, but I was pretty afraid of it. And and that was not a great headspace to be in. And at the same time, I was also like the worst person to sit next to at a bar because I'd just be like, "Oh, did you hear about these missiles? Like, hmm. you know about right, right. you know about the range of that missile? Mm-hmm. You ever hear about this World War One treaty? It's like that nobody wants to sit next to that right. guy at a bar, right? Um, so like, <laughs> I had to had to make a change. Um, and and fortunately, I got fired like a month later. So. I was, but while I was looking to the Middle East, especially this is on the Islamic State at the time, you know, the uh, the Kurds in Iraqi Kurdistan were this uh, enormous force in, in beating back the Islamic State out of uh, uh, you know out of north what is it northeastern Iraq, right? Um, and so they were using this political capital that they had at the time. So this was in 2017 in order to launch a referendum on independence from Baghdad, right? And so I had been reading about this area constantly, and of all of the stories that you're that you you read in the news, it's so rare that you find one where you're like hopeful about it, and it's like and it's exciting where you're like this is an independence movement. Not only is it an independence movement, but it's a it's one that's done through basically democratic means like it's it's a new country that could potentially vote itself into existence right and so as i started researching it i was like and you know as i was done watching beheading videos <laughs> i was like you know because anytime you lose your job you're like oh man well if i could do anything in the world what would i do and i was like i want to go see the referendum on independence in erbil in in iraqi kurdistan and so, like, I Googled jobs in Iraqi Kurdistan, and I found a, a job as a third grade te- and teacher. And so, like, two weeks later, had a ticket to northern oh, Iraq. Oh shit! Yeah, teaching what English? Uh, I was so I was I was basically third and fourth grade. Um, in the book, I call it the Kurdistan International School, but it's a it's a it's a Lebanese school system called Sabas. Um, and they, you know, put me up, gave me an apartment and, you know, uh, and paid me okay for the area, wow. but it was third, third grade, fourth grade, um, social studies, homeroom and, uh, and English by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, there were other international teachers at the school, but okay. yeah, just, just went out there and that was like a great way to basically start trying to to f- figure out about you know trying to start writing about about things where it wasn't the world tearing itself apart it was mm. it was actually new things being created um but of course that didn't actually end up happening for uh for the kurds in in iraqi kurdistan um so while i was there i was uh obviously teaching but i was also meeting meeting other journalists and uh, and talking to ngo workers um uh, made great friends with with some of the locals, um, and you know, was watching and waiting as this this vote for independence was happening. And it's amazing how the city uh, Erbil started to feel as it as it got closer to this vote because there was so much uncertainty in the air. Um, 
the larger regional powers did not want and still do not want this independent Kurdish region. Um, and the reason for that is because the, the Kurds are the largest stateless group of, of people in the right. world. So there are about 35 million Kurds. They're, um, uh, they're spread across in, in one sort of unbroken band across from the Zagros Mountains um, in, in Iran and Iraq all the way down to Syria and through a large portion of Turkey. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a big... A Wikipedia version of Kurdish, the Kurdish nationalism. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, the notable Kurdish dynasties, shout out to uh, Saladin the Great. He, uh, he was... He was the uh, the leader of the Ayyubid dynasty. So was there? So yeah. So where where did they come from? Um, they were uh, so they were a nomadic uh, person group uh, that was uh, that was. I mean, you know, they're they're uh, uh, originally from from the Zagros Mountains area, right? Mm-hmm. But why? So what did the word Kurd come from? So I've heard that, and sometimes like I don't know if this is just like a general reading of it. I've heard that it relates to tent dwellers, so mm. uh, nomadic, nomadic tribes people. Okay. Um, but I I didn't include that specifically in my book because I couldn't confirm it. Right. Basically, so this okay. is the this is the flag of Iraqi Kurdistan, and it's important oh. to yeah, it's important to understand too that um, there are many different Kurdish governments, Kurdish languages, um, and, and Kurdish groups that are contained within the larger area that the world would consider Kurdistan, or cer- certainly Kurds would consider ca- Kurdistan. Okay. So there are, there are, you know, um, there's a Kurdish region of Iran, there's a Kurdish region of Turkey, there's a Kurdish region of uh, northeastern Syria, and also Iraq. Each has ostensibly different governmental systems and even sometimes different languages. So Kurdish languages. So in Iraq, Iraqi Kurdistan, they speak a language called Sorani, but you also have um, uh, Kurmanji, which is a majority Kurdish spoken language. Um, And one of the reasons that these regional powers don't want any sort of independence movement from, from certainly Iraqi Kurdistan is that it'll animate independence movements in these other countries. So Turkey doesn't want a Kurdish independence movement to happen when within its borders. Yeah. So this this red area here, this is the disputed area between Iraqi Kurdistan, which is in the green, and then um, yeah, the the disputed area is um, uh, is in the red there. And so while I was there, the Kurdish referendum on independence happened. Um, but immediately Baghdad was like, hey, you super aren't independent and you're also not taking Kirkuk with you. So the reason that Kirkuk is important is because this majority, I mean, a huge amount of oil comes out of Kirkuk. Okay. Back in the day, Saddam Hussein was like, I got too many Kurds on that oil land, so I got to move a bunch of Arabs up there and, and what, he, what he called Arabize the area so that wow. he, would, he would have... Uh, so which part of this map were you at? Uh, Erbil, right there. That's where I was teaching third grade. Erbil. Yeah. Okay, you were in Erbil. I was. So it's the green zone right here. Yeah, correct. And why is that green? What does that say on the bottom? What's that little? So that's the area of the Kurdistan regional government. Okay, got it. So it's an autonomous region within Iraq. Got it. Okay. Just it's just an autonomous region that Iraq they leave it alone. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it that it, it there's there's to an extent. To an extent, yeah. There it's a it's a 
Is it kind of like similar to how um, Eastern Ukraine was sort of like a lot of Russians were there and there was there was a there's a, a differentiation in government. Okay, definitely. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. So there is there is a government that that is uh, run independently, um, but it has direct relationship with Baghdad. It's under the control of mm. Baghdad. Okay, and so when they tried to vote themselves independent. <clears throat> in 2017, um, Baghdad reasserted its control and decided to basically go to have a small war over Kirkuk with the Kurdish fighters oh, to wow. ensure that Kurdistan, the Iraqi Kurdistan, never took the oil producing region with them. Mm. And so at the same time, Iraq basically said, okay, also all your airports belong to us and we're shutting down your airspace. And, you know, at this point, it was, I, was I was sort of early on in in wanting to write about about unrecognized nations, and I didn't realize that uh, my book wasn't going to just be about Iraqi Kurdistan. That's what I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, but then I decided to leave Iraqi Kurdistan because I was going to see my my girlfriend, who was a uh, a Fulbright scholar in Bulgaria at the time. Mm. So what you know the school had told me was like, okay, well, you know, if you leave. You might not be able to come back in because like we don't you certainly can't come in through the air because Iraq or, or airspace. Yeah. Baghdad shut down the airspace. So I was like, OK, I'll leave. I'll leave Iraqi Kurdistan um, on a bus. <laughs> I'll just take a bus across the border and then fly from this place called um, uh, Sirnach. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced um, in uh, in eastern Turkey. So yeah, I I went uh, went across the border um, and and spent you know uh, Christmas with my my girlfriend at the time, and then we decided to just go back through Turkey for for New Year's because I was like okay well like I have to go back through Turkey overland anyway uh, to get back to Iraq so, you know I have my apartment there my job there mm -hmm. and so there's a great train that you can take from Sofia Bulgaria to um, to Istanbul so we're taking that train. And, uh, you know, they take us off the train at like three o'clock in the morning and they're like, um, you know, passports and give them our passports. And they start looking at us a little funny and they're like, where, where do you live? And then my, my girlfriend, uh, uh, Savannah was like, um, oh, I live in Bulgaria. She's a Fulbright scholar. And, uh, I fucked up massively. And I said, I live in Kurdistan. And immediately they were like, oh, um, you, you, you gotta come with us. And so they took both of us and I got a, I got a, a probably about an hour and a half, two hour interrogation from the, uh, the Turkish authorities. And what they thought was that I was some kind of political agent, um, either operating on behalf of the United States or operating on behalf of the PKK who are the Kurdish workers right, party. Right. Um, because I mean, frankly, it just didn't look good. Me. There's probably so many CIA agents in that that area of the world. <laughs> probably, yeah. There's got to be. I mean, yeah. They, they. It, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I ran into mostly, mostly third graders. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely none of them right. seemed to, too shadowy to me. Yeah. Um. So they, they pulled you to side. Yeah. Yeah. You for two so hours. In, interrogated any, me. Any physical beating? They swatted my legs a little bit. Really? Just because I like, I don't know. I didn't know if it was offensive or not. Um, uh, but I like crossed my leg, like, you know, just like crossed my leg and dude like hit my leg and he's like, sit up straight. And I was like, oh shit, like this is, this is real. Wow. And so he's like, he's like, so, you know, you work for 
PKK? Do you work for CIA? Like, do you, who do you work for? I'm like, dude, I'm a third grade teacher. I'm trying to write a book about unrecognized countries. It's a good cover, by the way. See, I know. And that's the worst part. And then they Googled me and then they like found all the writing that I had done for, for the previous, uh, mm. uh, you know, uh, geopolitical forecasting company, which was a lot of stuff about Turkey. And then they were like, let me see your camera. And I had just previously been to a rally, like an independence rally for uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. So like the whole memory card was just nothing but like hyper-nationalistic oh, Kurdish God. imagery. And I'm just like, I'm fucked. Yeah, I'm so fucked. And I was just like, I was thinking two things basically at the same time. I was like, one, like how mad is my girlfriend gonna be at me uh, for, for getting us like kicked out of Turkey? Um, or two, am I going to Turkish prison tonight? Um, oh, was it a fatalities map? Of what? What is this? What, what uh, this is a, it's a, a PKK. Turkey PKK conflict, a visual explainer. Oh, uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And I, I should say I didn't I never I never really went into uh, into the the Kurdish area of Turkey okay. um, for for you know for the research for my book right um, and you know I haven't been back to Turkey since because they banned me um, they banned you yeah yeah I'm straight up banned still how did that happen they handed me some papers that said you're banned right when they, after they interrogated yeah. you yeah and they said walk <laughs> like we were on the border of of Bul- do you still have those pa- have a picture of those papers we can pull up I don't have it on oh, me no shit no okay. I'm sure I can find it though. I'll that's, send it to you. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so what so, would happen if you went back? Beheaded? Uh, no, I don't think so. Do they, I don't think they'd behead. No. I actually tried to go back one more time. Um, oh, really? Yeah, well, because I, 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 we... We thought that it was some kind of, uh, you know, we thought that there was a there was like a term limit on it, like there because there was some sort of antagonism between the United States and Turkey at that time, mm-hmm. and we thought maybe this was like you know not that big of a deal. Turns out it's a really big deal. So they they banned me from entering Turkey. I can fly through Turkey, um, but as far as I know, I haven't Can't tried the airport. Yeah, I haven't tried to go back into Turkey right. since. Um, but yeah, they they kind of left us at the border of Bulgaria and, and Turkey, and we're like, okay, well, you know, walk. It's uh, it's December and uh, and three o'clock in the morning in Bulgaria. So, what? How cold? What was the temperature? Super cold. Um, but fortunately, a cab was coming through the border at that exact moment. Mm-hmm. I was like, we waited a little bit, and a cab was coming through because there's a bunch of casinos on the other side. Mm-hmm. And this this absolute saint guy named Demeter, he. Uh, uh, he picked us up and, and drove us to like a small town called Svilingrad, Bulgaria. Mm. Um, but at that point, I'm just like, oh shit, like there goes like my book. And this is also my thesis project. I was working, I was um, uh, getting my master's degree in writing from, uh, from Oxford at the time. So I was like, Wow. This like this totally torpedoed my whole book, and also I lost all the stuff I had in my apartment. I lost my job. Um, like I'm I'm starting from ground zero <laughs> here, and uh, and this is not looking good. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I've got to continue on this journey of unrecognized countries. There are other unrecognized countries. Mm-hmm. So what if I just like make my year about trying to go to other unrecognized nations at these sort of like politically relevant times for them. And so I decided originally to go back to Kosovo. Um, so Kosovo is, um, is 
you know, you're going to have a lot of mad Serbian listeners right now. Um, according to the Serbs, uh, Kosovo is a part of Serbia. According to over 100 nations in Europe um, and around the world, uh, Kosovo is its own independent nation. So when Yugoslavia fell, uh, Kosovo fought a war to break apart from Serbia. And actually, it's it's pretty geopolitically active right now. Mm. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of things happening in in northern Kosovo where Kosovo meets Serbia. Um, yeah, so Yugoslavia broke up, and Serbia. There was Serbia, Kosovo, and Albania. So Co- Albania was never a part of Yugoslavia. Okay. Um, but uh, so uh, Montenegro, um, Northern Macedonia, uh, Kosovo, uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, mm-hmm. Slovenia. Um, I'm missing one. Did I say Serbia? Serbia. Yes. Yeah. So all uh, Serbians are the ones that were massacring everybody, right? Yeah. So it was it was a, uh, a Serbian genocide. Uh, yeah. It was the the Serbian led. Uh, so it was under a guy named uh, uh, Slobodan Milosevic. Right. And okay. so yeah, there we go. These maps are awesome. Yeah. Right. Um, so the reason for that dotted line around Kosovo is because it's not recognized by everybody in the world. Ooh. Right. And so I was there for the 10 year anniversary of Kosovo. And so in um, and, you know, oftentimes countries don't recognize Kosovo because they have a close relationship with Serbia or because they have their own independence movements that are within their countries. So weirdly, Spain doesn't recognize Kosovo because they have uh, uh, independence movements in Catalonia. So it looks a little bit strange for them to say, hey, yeah, we recognize your independence movement, but not ones that are going on in our own backyard. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. So, mm-hmm. so when you're building a country, essentially it boils down to declaration and recognition. And so you can declare being a country all you want. In fact, I just saw um, some some DJ in the, the uh, California desert decided to declare his own country called a uh, slow jamistan. If you, really? Yeah, look up Slow Jamistan. Slow Jamistan. Slow Jamistan. So he's what declared part of the world it. is this at? This is Southern California. Oh, no. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joshua Tree. I, I, there we go. <laughs> the Republic of Slow Jamistan. Stop it. That's right, man. Stop it. Travel advisory. Mm-hmm. Non-Americans wishing to travel to Slow Jamistan. Sultan invites you to join the Sultan. He's a Sultan too. <laughs> and That's so amazing. I mean and these these types of movements like essentially they're they're the they're not the exception to the rule. They right. are the rule. This is this is you know this is fucking goofy. But at the time when like a a group of violent revolutionaries decided to meet in a bar, you know, um, they they created a country called the United States. Like, yeah, it was probably a pretty goofy idea to some people at the time, but it ended up working. Right. Because they're able to gain recognition. Not only could they generate consent amongst the governed, but they could generate consent amongst other countries to say, yes, you exist. Mm. And that's the thing that... Iraqi Kurdistan was missing, certainly. They needed support from the United States. We didn't support them. We supported them to help us fight the Islamic State, certainly. Mm-hmm. But not we, we armed them enough to do that, but okay. not enough to fight back against Baghdad to have a, a, a revolution within territorial Iraq. And when was that? 
When did we arm? 2017. 2017, we armed them. Well, we've we've worked pretty closely with the Kurds for for a long time. Um, in I want to say in 1992, there was an operation called Operation Provide Comfort, which installed a no-fly zone over Iraq, and this was to uh, help the uh, help the Kurdish population along the border who were fleeing uh, okay. ethnic cleansing from Saddam Hussein. Oh wow! So we've we've had a close relationship with them, but you know we are constrained by our our relationship with turkey and with federal iraq right, so right. that we would never actually support an independence movement with them right at least that's you know okay that makes that's sense. my understanding of it the you know um the, i'm a geopolitical numbskull so uh, apologize for the dumb question well look nobody nobody consulted me as to whether or not like they should support kurdish independence i i, I was uh, you know teaching sentence structure to <laughs> kurdish let's take a break eight-year-olds i gotta fix this ac um, we're uh, we're we're both zinning right now. Oh, zinning! We're on the Zimbabwe. <laughs> um, so I was in um, uh, nicotine conversation. By nic- the way, we're nic- back from our bathroom break. <laughs> nicotine conversations and unrecognized nations. <laughs> <laughs> bars, not not Lincoln esque bars, but bars nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so I was uh, I was in uh, uh, Mitrovica, which is uh, this area in Kosovo. Um, oh, Kosovo's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this area in Kosovo, which is like disputed between uh, the, the Serbs and the uh, the majority Albanian population. I mm-hmm. should say that the the uh, majority of uh, Kosovo is Albanian and Albanian speaking, but there are other uh, ethnic minorities that live there and there mm-hmm. are also Serbs that live there. Right. Um, yeah, there it is. That's Mitrovica. And so I... Uh, you know, I wanted to to go up there because, I mean, look, I'm I'm an American uh, and I live in Albania, uh, so that that certainly like tilts my point of view on Kosovo, uh, because America uh, sort of led the charge for the NATO bombing campaign that stopped Milosevic and uh, led to the establishment of Kosovo as an autonomous state. And so they really like Americans and, you right. know, that's I, what Beck was saying. Yeah. 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 And so I, I really like Albanians. So I'm, I'm massively biased towards that point of view. And so while I was working on this book, I was like, well, I also need the Serb point of view. Um, I need to understand what they're, uh, what, what living in a country that essentially they don't consent to is like for them. So I went up to uh, to northern Mitrovica, and there's this bridge that crosses over a river. It's called the Ibar River, and it's sort of patrolled by all of these UN peacekeepers, um, Italian Carbonieri, um, who are sort of keeping the Serbian side and the Albanian side separate because if anything's going to pop off, if war is going to start again uh, in the region, then it's going to start probably at Mitrovica or in one of these borderland mm-hmm. areas. And so I went up there and I was like, well, I need to cross the bridge. I need to go, you know, like just talk to somebody. And as I was crossing the bridge, I was like, you know, I immediately felt like this intense sense of, of, you know, anxiety because I was like, it quite literally felt like I'm crossing over from the side of us, just from my own like nationalistic conceptions Mm -hmm. to the side of them. Because I know for a fact that the United States is revered in Kosovo because they helped stop Milosevic's genocide. 
And I know for a fact that the Serbs do not love America because we bombed their capital. In fact, the bombed out buildings are still sort of kept as monuments. Oh, wow. Right? And so feeling yourself change, you know, how you feel in a place based off of how other people are perceiving you, like that's kind of the essence of of the illusion of statecraft, right? Mm. I'm just crossing a bridge. Like nothing's changed, but everything's changed about my internal life. Suddenly I feel like the other. And so I cross the bridge and, you know, I'm kind of doing what I usually do as, as a, uh, you know, as a travel writer, which is just, you know, try to make friends. <laughs> right. And so I go to this bar. Same thing a spy would do. Yeah. Except they'd have healthcare. <laughs> yeah. Be awesome. <laughs> Hire me. <laughs> CIA. What's up? Not doing anything right now. Um, except for my book, you are not here. Travels through countries that don't exist. <laughs> CIA recommended. Um, so I go to this, this coffee shop and I'm kind of just sitting there having uh, having a drink and smoking a cigarette and minding my own business, but also trying to, you know, uh, trying to make friends. And at some point, this guy looks over to me and he's like, um, you Balkan? And he says it in English. And I was like, nope, not. Why'd you think that? And he's like, well, you drink like a Russian, you smoke like a Turk and you look like a Jew. <laughs> I was like, damn. Whoa. That Dude. was accurate, man. <laughs> I'm like, so I'm like, hey, can I buy you a drink? And he's like, I'm Muslim. No, but you can buy me a coffee. And I'm like, cool, man. So we start chatting. and So Muslims don't drink? Uh, I mean, some do, right. um, but but obviously more Orthodox Muslims don't drink. Okay. It's, it's uh, haram to them. Wow. Um, and he was. And so... It was a fascinating conversation with the guy. He's, he's, he's Bosniak, right? And so a part of Milosevic's genocide was Bosniaks, was, was Muslim men and boys. Like the, the Srebrenica massacre was this horrifying massacre in Bosnia. And yet there I have a Bosniak guy who's sitting next to me in, you know, the Serbian-dominated side of Mitrovica in Kosovo, a majority Albanian country. And I'm like, what? are you doing here? And he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm trying to write a book about unrecognized nations. And I'm like, can you explain, you know, can you explain how you sort of see your national identity to me? And he's like, oh, you're not, you're not Balkan at all. You would understand this. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not. Like, you know, he's like, look, I speak Serbian. I have the same religion as many of the Albanians. I even speak Albanian. But I know that I, and I grew up in Yugoslavia, but I know I'm not Albanian because my father says that I'm Bosniak and certainly I'm Slavic, but I know I'm not Serbian and I know I'm not Croatian because I'm not Catholic. And I'm like, okay, so what you're saying is that you understand your identity based off of the things that you're not. That's a big portion of like what your identity is. And there's even a term for this. Um, it's called schismogenesis. And the idea is that national identities, group identities can mm -hmm. often come from another group that you're being different than, that you're identifying yourself away from. Yugoslavia was the land of the Southern Slavs. That's what Yugoslavia means. 
And so there are all these different groups within Yugoslavia, Croatians, Slovenians, um, Macedonians, Serbians, Bosniaks, and they all had different national characters. And so when Yugoslavia fell apart, they divided along cultural lines. And so he understood himself, his own personal identity, how his identity plugged into the rest of what he felt his nation was, was as a Bosniak, specifically because his parental lineage, his religious beliefs, and also who he said he wasn't. And so at that point, I was like, okay, one, you're right, I'm definitely not Balkan. Um, and maybe I would understand that a little bit better uh, if I didn't grow up in Southern California. <laughs> um, and then two... Um, what's it like, you know, living in a Serbian city after there was this, you know, massacre of Bosnians? He's like, well, you want to, do you want to see, um, how Serbs treat Muslims now? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you should go to a funeral. I'm like, o okay. He's like, you want to come to one tomorrow? I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah. I'm, I'm like, who died? He's like, my mother. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll come to your, and it wasn't, it wasn't like a funeral. I was awake. And so like. I was like, yeah, I'll totally. So I was staying on the Albanian side of the, the bridge and decided to shout out to Ayrton, by the way. What's up, man? The really cool guy. Um, so he definitely watches this. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Ayrton. Um, so I, you know, I, and it, it had the weirdest experience too. Cause I was like, okay, yesterday I felt like all this anxiety about like crossing the bridge and like, you know, am I, am I them? Are people going to, you know, uh, think badly of me because I'm, I'm so squarely on the opposite side of things. I mean, even literally physically, cause it's a damn bridge. Um, but then the next day I'm like, okay, I'm going to like awake. So I better like bring something cause it's like rude show up empty handed. So I went over to an Albanian bakery and like got some baklava, but then I was like, oh shit, this box is written in Albanian. I'm like, is that going to be offensive? And I'm like, no, fuck it. Baklava is great. Like I'll just bring, mm -hmm. you know, bring baked goods to this thing. And so I walked across and, you know, and, and sort of sat with his family as, and, you know, it was a, I don't know if that's a, a typical Bosniak wake, but we all just sort of like sat around and, and kind of like held silence for, for his mother who had passed. And after a little bit, he was like, well, you want to come out and have a cigarette with me? And I was like, okay. So we went outside and, um, and he was like, let me, let me show you uh, what my mom looked like. And so he goes over to this sort of like death notice and it's, um, it's sort of stapled to um, uh, one of the, the like light poles in the area. And he's like, the, the, the green box is because uh, she's Muslim. But as you can see, you know, this, this house is full of, of Serbs, Bosniaks, like, you know, we're, we we're trying to move on. Mm -hmm. And like at a certain point, like the dead don't care about their, their nationality. And and then I had a similar conversation with, with uh, Kosovar, who was, he was running the Reuters Bureau um, in, uh, in uh, uh, Pristina at the time during, during, the, uh, during the war. And I asked him, you know, was, was there a time that he sort of felt this like elation, right? I mean, you know, this is going to be released on, on July 4th. And... Americans have this sort of like, at least I do, I can, let me speak for myself. Like I have this sort of like assumption that like at the point that the declaration of independence was signed and, you know, the flag is waving, like there's this sort of like glorious elation that like we have a country and we did it. And I think that might actually be fiction 
because I asked him about that. Like, was there ever this point of, of like, you know, absolute joy that you, you won? He's like, no, no, because then you have to build a nation. Yeah, you want it, but like, you have to build it. You have to build institutions now. You have to you have to do all the hard work. You have to clean up all of the the buildings. You have to you have to help repair the shattered lives. You have to deal culturally with a genocide. There was no moment of elation, and I was like, so when, you know, when does when does the work of building a nation actually stop? And he looked at me and he was like, look, there's a there's a graveyard on the border of Albania and Kosovo. Their work's done. They don't have any work to do. But the rest of us, we're still creating a nation. And I, I went back to Kosovo fairly recently, and I was, I was there for the 15th year anniversary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talked with Serbs and, I, and, uh, and Albanian Kosovars. Of course, there are other, there are other, other uh, uh, you know, minority groups there as well. The Guarani, there's Bosniaks, there's so, uh, Turks. Um, there's a lot of people there. Um, but I talked with one Serbian guy. Um, he's a docent at a, a monastery called Gracenica. And it's like this sort of enclave, a Serbian majority enclave in Kosovo. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a Serbian monastery and immediately asked me where I'm from. It kind of surprised me. And normally I'd say California, but I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, some cool. <laughs> um, but I was like, United States. And he was like, oh, okay. And then kind of went the other way. Hmm. And so, you know. Um, they don't like Americans though, right? We bombed them, man. Right. Yeah. Um, like, Kosovo has a statue of Bill Clinton. Really? Yeah, and he has a really big hand. See if you can find uh, the, the statue of Bill Clinton. Why do they have a statue of Bill Clinton? Because he, he, was, the, uh, he was the sort of leading force in the bombing campaign against, uh, against Milosevic's oh, forces. Oh, wow. Yeah. Bill Clinton's statue. Oh, yeah, you said it was 91, right? Yeah. Oh no! Later, it was uh, it was uh. N- oh shit! Look at that. Yeah, yeah, that's Bill. There he is. Savage. Yeah, they also have like a clothes shop called Hillary's. Huge hand. Just absolutely enormous. Um, but you know, I was talking with this guy, and he's like, you know, it's my job to protect this monastery. And you know, he starts walking me through the alternate history for him you know, the alternate Serbian history. And it like, it's not like he's just sort of like spouting off propaganda that he's memorized. Like he's deeply affected by this too. Um, and, and he's say, and he used this, this phrase to me, he's like, you know, this is halftime in the football game. It's not over. You know, Serbia is going to come back. It's going to get this area again, even though this area is deeply within Kosovo. So, it's again, it's like that, that people's ability to construct reality around themselves can lead them to believe whatever promises them a future tense. And so while he looks around outside of the village of Gratzenica and he sees everything in Albanian writing, and he sees, you know, um, the EU trying to sponsor uh, institution building in the country. He's saying to himself, well, in the future, it's not going to be like this. In the future, it's going to be part of Serbia again. And this is something that I think is always um, something to look out for with political leaders. Because political leaders tend to promise you either a future or a past. 
And the reason that they promise you a future or a past is because it's not something that's happening right now. You won't be able to determine the results of it. So look at make America great again. Right. Cool. When exactly? Like, was it was it you know when we had this robust driving middle class after World War II because the manufacturing infrastructure of the world world was destroyed in Europe and we had shipping lanes across the Pacific and the Atlantic? Mm-hmm. Was it then? I mean, it wasn't great for everybody. So who is it great for? Right. And the answer to that is his voters. And then sometimes political leaders are promising you the future. What do you mean his voters? Well, that's who he's talking to, you know, uh, MAGA voters. When do they believe that again was? I don't know. I'd be curious. <clears throat> like there's, uh, there's this sort of, from what I understand anyway, there's this Norman Rockwell version of America. And I'm not, I'm certainly not a person who, who will just you know, right off the United States. I think the United States is great. I mean, we've done remarkable things. But to look at your own nation through only rose-colored glasses is to to not actually see your nation, you know? Mm. Every nation, much like every person, contains some really incredible bright parts, but also incredible shadows. And any nation that's able to elicit violent force and domination on the world has done horrifying things. And this goes all throughout antiquity. Mm. Like that is the state of a nation. And so how people perceive that, whether or not they perceive that as greatness, that's something that a political leader can use to guarantee them a future that is brighter than their current present. Okay. You know? That makes sense. Or uh, take, for example, um, you know, the Soviet Union. Mm. We're moving towards communism. We're moving towards pure communism. Right now, we need to hand over all of this power towards strong men so that resources can be redistributed. And then we'll have, you know, this fair, equitable, non-hierarchical government structure. But first, we have to, you know, we have to do this sort of like really intense uh, uh, autocracy. Right. And so... Again, political leaders are promising the future or they're promising the past. The important thing is they're promising something that's not immediately visible because they need your consent. It makes me think about where we are right now in the country and like where do most Americans believe that we're going? What is the message? Like, I mean, Trump had a great marketing campaign. Yeah, nobody can deny that. And I don't see any other presidents doing that. Having a great marketing campaign? Not just having a great marketing campaign, but promising some sort of future. Yeah. Or like you say, a past. Like they're not really giving any sort of grandiose vision of something that people can get behind. Like Trump had something that people got behind. Right. And like you said, they made it their religion. Yeah. Well, that's the, uh, I think it's um, uh, Zuboff in uh, uh, Surveillance Capitalism. She talks about this sort of like this human need to have a right to the future tense. Right. Mm. And so a right to the future tense is this idea that when you can project your own personal identity into the future reasonably and you can say, I'll be more productive, I'll be more wealthy, I'll be more secure, my children will be thriving and healthy. Mm -hmm. When you can do that, you don't have many problems with the system at hand. But when you can't do that when your vision of the future becomes dimmer and darker and when it looks like things are actually getting worse from you or uh, when it looks like things are getting worse for you Mm. then suddenly you're going to cling to any ideology that promises you that future tense 
even if it doesn't actually bear any resemblance to reality. Because we as human beings need that. Like we need yeah. to feel that our, our, our future is going to be secure. That we have some sort of purpose. Exactly. And, and you can so easily pour purpose into national identity. You know, as I was talking with the, the guy in the Serbian monastery, he was, you know, he's, he's almost to the point of tears talking about like how, how Serbia is going to reclaim this monastery that he, he cares so much about. Um, like he has to believe that because it's his identity is so deeply involved in it. Right. When everything around him is is telling the exact opposite of that. It's so interesting to to see these tools used in nations that are unrecognized or that they're building up their own national identity mm. or that they've, you know, they've won a national identity partially or, or pardon me, or that they've won national recognition, mm -hmm. but not throughout the entire world. And then to come back to the United States and see that, like, we've grown up in a nation where we think of that as immutable, right? We've grown up in a nation thinking that the United States has been around, always will be around, and it's not going anywhere. Right. And, and that's just not the case for most nation states, right? Right. You know, the USSR crumbled into its constituent parts as soon as uh, as soon as independence movements started moving through the the, the country. Mm. That was a 250 million person country. It's the biggest landmass in the world. Right. And it disappeared. So what do you call yourself? Like, I mean, what do you call yourself? If, I don't, I've run this question all the time. Like, America disappears tomorrow. Right. Like, what am I now? I would probably still identify as an American. I wouldn't be a Californian. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I mean, I live in Albania. I'm not Albanian. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, would I go back to like whatever my grandparents were? Oh, what, what do you think you would do? I don't know. I ask the question, though, to a lot of people all the time. Like, what would they do if the United States was no longer the world's superpower? Like, would we become some some huge target to some of the other superpowers? Like, would we become like a vulnerable target to Russia and China would they how much of a grip would they have on us and how how much security would we have living here if we were no longer the number one superpower so that that's a super interesting point of view on it I think it's like a super it's definitely like the dominant American point of view because it's like I think one of the the things that that defines the American character is um, self-determinate pardon me one of the things that defines the American character is like self-determination, but on the flip side of that, the shadow of that is paranoia, right? It's like, I'm going to be the one who's leading this thing. I'm going to go out and make it on my own. I'm going to, you know, dominate world markets. I'm going to innovate. I'm going to do all these things. But what happens when I'm no longer on top? Will other nations treat me right. like I've treated other nations? Right. And, and the, the, I simply don't know. I mean, I if I were to assess that, I think you'd have to look at really the geography. Like, how much can we decentralize to produce the things that we personally need to survive? We have an enormous amount of arable land. Um, we have drinkable water. We have navigable waterways. Um, we've we've operated in a sort of like federated mode before. Um, and does it make sense to invade us? Mm. Like, does it genuinely? Does does 
China want our land. They have a lot of land. Right. They have quite a bit. So, you know, what would be the imperative? And Why would the, somebody be forced to act violently on the United States? You know, it does. It, it's interesting when you think about like the geography of the United States and how we are surrounded by the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. And it may not make sense to put boots on the ground in the United States if you're another country, but you could you could sort of take over the United States in other ways, which is hmm. a lot of people talk about how China is doing that with us through like TikTok hmm. and trying to make us dumber. Like, right, with like every kid between the age of 12 and 20, in their 20s, hmm. they're just scrolling through mindless TikTok stuff all the time. China is putting fent fentanyl, you know, literally like shipping fentanyl to Mexico, which is getting into the drugs, which is, you know, killing a lot of people in the U.S. They're doing it in these weird subversive ways. They're sort of like, like injecting them themselves into us like this, this negative, all these negative aspects of, of drugs and media into us, which is killing us from the inside mm, like yeah. that, that quote like abraham lincoln said that we would like rot from the inside which seems like what's happening right now it's like it's like a end stage late stage capitalism empire yeah kind of thing yeah it's well it's interesting too so it in the it's a it's a really interesting assessment and i think that that's something that a lot of people feel right now mm. um especially when i come back to the states i think the first thing that i notice when i go back to the states is there is so much paranoia there's so much fear yeah. here constantly yeah, yeah. um it's and there's so much political polarization as soon as i have any conversation with anybody they're sort of probing for whatever my politics are mm -hmm. like i mean i can say something as innocuous as blue hair you already have a political picture, right? Right. right. And you already have a menu of beliefs that like yes. this person, like I literally said two words. And so like, that's astounding, right? That is. Uh, that, that Americans are constantly probing one another to say, are you on my side? Or are you mm. on their side? Mm. Because if you're on their side, I want nothing to do with you. Right. And that is so corrosive to any nation. Um, but going back to your point about China, I mean, I'm in no way any sort of expert really on anything, um, certainly not on China. Um, but, uh, you know, you'd have to ask yourself, what's the imperative behind it? Like, I, I think if I'm if I'm moving towards being a dominant power in the world, uh, I want and a dominant economic power, certainly mm -hmm. I want markets. Right. You know, I, I don't. I don't care about about turning somebody, you know, Chinese. I I want I want wealth to come from outside markets into my country. I want to maintain the wealth within my country and use that for the betterment of my people, right? And this is this is ultimately the reason that I think that we're in this stage of reconceptualizing what a nation state is. Because, the, frankly, the nation state just hadn't been around for that long. Previously, it was like empires, it was kingdoms, it was fiefdoms, mm. um, and it was clans. So, like, as we go down to that base level of the pyramid, um, it, it becomes more and more decentralized and it becomes more um, communal. But what happens when you have a global economy, capitalism doesn't care about your borders. It cares about maximizing the benefit of business 
and it will fall to the point that the price point for labor is the lowest and it will rise to the point that they can sell goods for the highest, mm -hmm. right? And so we've had this drain of low, uh, of value added work that's been exported. And so our GDP looks great because it's like, wow, all these businesses, they're multi-trillion dollar businesses, right? But who's, who's doing the labor? Like it's, it's going to Foxconn and, right. and you know, the, the, and so from what I understand, our GDP is not that great. We're like on the border, we're like borderline in a recession, but the reason that they're the way they're keeping us out of a recession is by funding the wars, like the military industrial complex, mm -hmm. like funding more money into these private military contractors, all these billions and billions of dollars is keeping us above that line of us falling into a quote unquote recession. Well, I, I in no way can speak on on whether or not we're in a recession or not because I don't think anybody actually can. I mean, there's there's, you know, the the last thing that I heard is people will always say, well, the target is two percent inflation. Okay, mm -hmm. but like, what is it actually? And also, how do you define that? Um, but what you have is you have these really high producing businesses. And so as we've sort of evolved as a nation economically, we're not in the sort of post-World War II era where manufacturing is being done in the United States and it's being shipped off to other nations to, to sell our goods there because we're just the only game in town. Europe used to be, but its infrastructure was destroyed and nobody could ship to both the Pacific and Atlantic. And so suddenly we had this robust working class where not only are we building in the United States, but we're innovating in the United States and people are getting richer and richer. That's the point where people are talking about, that's when America was great again. Right, right. right. When people had this assumption that their life was just getting better because, I mean, I look at my parents and my you know grandparents, you know, they came from being very small town subsistence farmers to my dad's a, a judge and my mom's an author um, to, you know, being metropolitan, highly educated, wealthier people than their ancestors could have imagined. And so when people in the sort of make America great, when people in the make America great, how do I? <laughs> <laughs> again? Yeah. When, <laughs> when people in the MAGA movement are saying make America great again, I think what they're what they're calling for is give me a future I can actually believe in mm. again. And that was happening in a massive economic way post World War II. But then, you know, we become instead of a labor-based economy, instead of a value-added based economy, we become a knowledge-based economy. So suddenly you need one Steve Jobs instead of a thousand workers at a right. Ford plant. Right? And suddenly labor goes to India, it goes to China, it goes to wherever the price point is the lower, lowest. It goes to wherever the price point is the lowest because, wow, wow, huge dick on that guy. Loud pipes. Yeah, um, because money ultimately doesn't care about borders. Right, yeah. And so that that's one of the reasons that I think that that we're having this this reevaluation of of what a country is. In fact, there are some people who think that like we're moving towards this like statehood as a service model, right? Citizenship almost as subscription model. I mean, think what is what does your country do for you? Right. It provides protection. Sometimes it provides health care. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
It provides a galvanizing sense of national identity. Um, but what does that mean when we can have relationships across the entire world? You know, people are playing online with, uh, uh, you know, players from Russia and from all over the world. They're, mm -hmm. They have an affinity group that doesn't live where they live. And they're working. I mean, I, I've worked from Albania for American companies for a bunch of different companies and, you know, never once lived in the United States. Well, I did live in the United States. But, right, right. You know. yeah. So, so what... You know, what does a country do for us in this world where we are all becoming sort of like digital global citizens? That's yeah. kind of creepy. <laughs> that is interesting. That you know, that's that's one of the things that um, people talk about when they talk about like type zero to type one, two, and three civilizations. Mm. As they say, like right now we're a type zero civilization, and to become a type one civilization, we have to become a global civilization. Yep. And we're kind of on our way there because we have the internet. The internet has made us far more global. But we're also experiencing these enormous growing pains and and because and because of these growing pains, it's it's leaving, I think, a lot of the world with this huge identity crisis. And that's why that's why it was so interesting to to look at unrecognized nations where it's like like, for example, the the next place I ended up going to is a place called Transnistria. Um, have you heard about? Only from you. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, Transnistria, uh, sometimes called the Black Hole of Europe. Um, it's this sort of like little slip of, of um, an autonomous zone. It's okay. only uh, recognized by three other countries who are also themselves unrecognized. It's a Russian protectorate, even though Russia doesn't recognize Transnistria as its own sovereign nation. Mm -hmm. That's the center of Tiraspol. That's their flag. Yeah. Oh, wow. And... Try to find a map of it. Yeah, it's it's a it's really tiny little slip of land, and it's right on the border of of Ukraine. Oh, okay, right by mm -hmm. Odessa. Yep, correct. It's only I think like an hour or two away from Odessa by uh, uh, by train. Okay. Yeah. So. And what made you want to go to Transnistria? So they were having Russian elections. Um. So I was in Kosovo for the ten year anniversary, um, and that's in the book, and then I realized like, wow, you know. Russian elections are happening outside of Russia. Super interesting. So in this country where even Russia doesn't recognize that it's its, it's, its own autonomous country, mm -hmm. um, they're hosting Russian elections because it's a majority Russian area. Right. And the reason that it is a majority Russian area is because literally because Catherine the Great went to war with the Ottomans back in the day mm -hmm. and they took this little slip of land because what you can see the sort of border there. Yeah, there's this river, the Dniester. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the Dniester River, um, hence the name Trans, Trans Dniestria. Mm -hmm. Trans across. Zo zoom out a little bit so I can see kind of like the whole area. And so what it does okay. is... Okay, okay, that's good. It lets you have access to the Black Sea. Right. And so Catherine the Great saw this as a geopolitical imperative. We've got to push the Ottomans off of this area so we can gain access to the Black Sea. Um and then when the Soviet Union sort of took a hold, uh, the Bolshevik Re Revolution kicked off and suddenly they needed to gather up all of these areas. So they needed to gather up Moldova. They needed to, you know, push their borders all the way out to uh, Central Asia. But they needed to s install that galvanizing sense of identity within the people that are there. Right. So suddenly you're not a Moldovan, you're a Soviet. But there are all these Russian pe uh, Russian speaking people who were in the 
uh, Transnistrian area. And so they're, they're sort of sandwiched in between Ukrainians and Moldovans. And as the Soviet Union started to rattle apart, they were like, no, we're, we want to we wanna keep the dream alive. And so that's why they still have Lenin statues. That's why they still have portraits of Stalin. I mean, it's, it's literally like going back in time to like what the Soviet Union would look like today, except in this sort of weird oligarchic way. Like mo- a lot of the things in Transnistria are run by literally a grocery store brand called Sheriff. Wow. Yeah. Look up uh, a grocery store. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's a great idea to um, uh, if you want to sort of like have control over an area, Mm -hmm. like what do grocery stores do? They're responsible for supply lines. They're responsible for uh, large amounts of real estate. Mm -hmm. They partner with local businesses and they control the food. Right. Right. So sheriff. Second largest, the second largest company in an, the unrecognized breakaway state, Transnistria, sheriff supermarket under construction in the city of Bendry. Yep. Whoa. Yeah. So they own the majority of everything in Transnistria, and you know it's a way of having a sort of de facto government. A great way of doing that is keeping control over the food. Uh, it's keeping control over how resources are brought in, supply lines. And since Moldova has this, uh, has a, a sort of agreement with their companies, you can do business so long as they're considered Moldovan companies. Now, Sheriff is kind of the only game in town because they have relationships with Look the, at that logo. It's, it's a literal Sheriff star. Yep. Yep. In fact, they even have their Did own. that come from like the US? Was that inspired by like, so I, I've heard I've heard different things that I in no way uh, can can confirm, but I I heard that the inspiration from it was the fact that the uh, the sort of um, you know the 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 lawmakers in the town the sort of secret police and and uh, the uh, yeah so the lawmakers that were still active in in Transnistria were like okay well what are we going to call our company now that we need to have a legitimate company it's like well what are we we're the sheriffs of this town mm, sheriff star whoa i don't know if that's true or not i really have no idea but it, that's so funny it there that sheriff star exists for a reason they even have their own football team sheriff football team mm-hmm. yeah really like soccer soccer football. yeah, yeah, yeah uh-huh yeah. and i think they did pretty well this last year in something um but yeah it's a bizarre bizarre place um, and it kind of feels like you're being watched all the time. It feels like you're being followed there. I don't know if I was. It certainly seemed to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it also feels like you're kind of living in this fossil. You know, people in Transnistria have like five, six passports because they need to have some recognition outside of Transnistria because nobody recognizes a Transnistrian passport. So they'll have, you know, they'll have Moldovan, Romanian um russian passports okay and you know it's you look at that place and what it feels like being in that place is like well what what's the future that people want here is it that they're once again subsumed into larger russia i i don't know um that what what kind of sense did you get from the people there i got the sense that um people considered themselves russian but they also knew that they were kind of between this rock and a hard place that, uh, and I certainly can't speak for all Transnistrians, um, but that they were, they were sort of on this island, which they clearly are. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And and a lot of the stuff with the Ukraine war now, too, is like, well, is Transnistria, is the Transnistrian military going to activate and go into Ukraine? Because they have Russian tanks that are over there and they have a Transnistrian military. So wow, is that I'm actually surprised that it hasn't really activated the same way. Hmm. I'm I'm actually super surprised that uh, that Transnistria has not really been a part of the war effort at this point. But from what I understand, anyway, there is this strategy of trying to connect uh, the land bridge. You know, if you go along from southern Transnistria all the way across to uh, um, uh, the occupied territories in Ukraine, that that would sort of help them gather up the larger Ukraine or that would help them gather up the larger Russian forces. So what side would they be on, Ukraine or Russia? The Transnistrians? Yeah. Likely Russia. They're Russian-speaking. They're, right. Yeah. They're, they, I That's mean, like with a lot of um, areas in Ukraine, right? Like uh, Crimea is mainly Russian. And that, yeah. I mean, uh, that's what I've heard. I don't know. I've never been to Ukraine. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean. That's this just is what I've seen in uh, documentaries. Totally something that I've, he- I've heard and seen, yeah. yeah. But, but I, I truly don't know. Um, huh. Yeah, it's a really strange place. Um, but at this point, I, you know, I sort of three, three countries down uh, that were all unrecognized. And, and during this time, I had met this, this journalist in Iraq, and I told him about my project. And, and he was like, oh, man, if you like unrecognized nations, you should get a load of Lieberland. I was like, what's that? Lieberland. Uh, Where's this at? Uh, it is a, an island in the middle of the Danube River. The Free Republic of Lieberland. How big is it? Uh, seven square kilometers. It's about as big as the Vatican. <sighs> That's their flag. And so this this journalist. Um, These people come up with better flags. You know, I I agree. I agree that that could that flag is a little busy for my wow. taste. Um, so this this journalist was like, yeah, well, you should you should check out Lieberland. Do you want the the president's email? I was like, yeah, totally. I'll take that. <laughs> so I basically just started bothering like the, the, the government of Lieberland for like months while I was in, you know, well, once I got kicked out of Turkey and then I was in Kosovo and then I was in Transnistria, mm-hmm. just started bothering them. And eventually they wrote me back while I was in Transnistria and they're like, look, if you want to come and visit us, you can come for our third year anniversary. And I was like, done. Let's, let's get, mm-hmm. let's get to the Danube. And so ran basically all the way across from uh, Eastern Moldova to uh, uh, Novi Sad, Serbia, which is where they were sort of having their, their, uh, uh, their third year anniversary celebrations. And somebody was like, okay, um, if you want to meet Lieberlanders, you got to go up to uh, Apatine Harbor. Now I didn't really know much about Lieberland at the time. Uh, I knew that they were the world's first libertarian microstate. Um, and that was it. Like, that's all I knew. And so I go up to the small harbor, uh, in Apatine, Apatine, or, so I go up to the small harbor in Apatine, Serbia, and I see a boat, just like a houseboat hanging out in the, the harbor and it's flying the Liberland flag. And I'm like, is that Liberland? <laughs> like, I, where, where, where is it? And so, yeah, there's their website. Um, great website for our country. I know. Right. And, uh, and so I go up to the boat and there's like, you know, this shirtless Dutch dude on top of it. And he's like, you, are you a Lieberlander? And I'm like, I, no, 
And he's like, well, come aboard. Let's change that. And I'm like, okay. So I go up on this boat and I start talking with this dude. And I'm like, this is what I've been working on. And so he starts talking about how like they are not only the first world's first libertarian nation, but they're this sort of crypto anarchist nation that's funded based off of cryptocurrencies. Oh, wow. And so what, you know, they've done this, this really fascinating little trick of statecraft, right? So when Yugoslavia fell, there was this declared no man's land between Serbia and Croatia. And in that no man's land, that was the Danube River, there was this island, that island right there, that nobody really claimed. Croatia decided that they weren't going to claim it. Serbia decided they weren't going to claim it. So nobody was on this island. Cut to the future, and a libertarian political scientist guy, I, well, I guess I should just, I'm just going to call him. So anyway... <laughs> I don't know what to call him. The president. Of, so sounds good. Yeah. Cut to the future. The president of Liberland is like, I think I can start a country there. And he's a, you know, Bitcoin millionaire. He goes up and he's like, puts a flag in and he's like, I got a country. Now I just got to work on recognition. Because remember, if you start a country, it's two things. It's like right. declaration, recognition. And so they start building actual infrastructure. They have Liberlandians that are living on this. And mostly they're just like Bitcoin millionaires who are just like, this is, you know, the future of statecraft. What we're going to do is we're going to have this sort of libertarian paradise where we fund ourselves off of cryptocurrencies and we don't have to interact with the, you know, legacy financial system. And so that's why I'm talking with this like shirtless dude on a houseboat in the middle of the Danube River. And I'm like feeling kind of two ways about this because it's like on one hand, I've been through all of these countries that have had these violent revolutions, you know, blood and treasure to draw a line on a map. And meanwhile, a bunch of cryptocurrency millionaires decide, well, we can take this land because nobody wants it mm. and we can start our nation here and we can sort of live parallel to the laws of the world by making our own. We can live parallel to the laws of the world by making our own laws on this little island. Because again, now we're in a place where that's that's the uh, that's the future plan. That is the future plan. Yeah. Hmm. So these crypto guys are going to fund all this. I mean, that's what they're trying to do right now. Um, I I ended up with them for their uh, their like I said the third year anniversary, and uh, eventually you know after after bothering the the Liberlanders as much as possible, I end up in in this sort of cryptocurrency conference in in Novi Sad, Serbia. And I was, you know, just talking with the various Lieberlanders. And at one point, somebody was like, hey, that's the Secretary of State. Just go talk to him. And it turns out he was coming to find me. And so, you know, after talking with the sort of shirtless Dutch crypto anarchist, I was like, mm -hmm. is this just kind of like a Burning Man thing? Like, right. what's, what, what is Lieberland at this point? And this, this dude is like this really genteel, super smart um, English guy. And so we sit down and, and start talking about statecraft. And I'm like, what are we doing here? And he's like, we're making a country. I'm like, legitimately? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, how? And so he sort of starts talking me through like the various ways they're gaining recognition. And one way was actually pretty fascinating. So they kicked everybody off of Liberland, Croatia did. Serbia nominally supports them. And so the Croatians kicked people off of Serbia, or pardon me, the Croatians kicked people off of the Liberland Island because they said it was a affront to their sort of national integrity. 
Um, but through treaty, they actually say that they have no claim over the island. So the president of Liberland ends up getting himself um, arrested by the Croatian authorities. And so what that does is it makes them have to make a legal decision. Do you have claim over this territory or not? Because according to this treaty, you don't. But you arrested somebody who's a European citizen for apparently illegally entering your country. So either you have a claim or you don't. And so by taking them to court, they were able to sort of start carving out recognition from Croatia. And then meanwhile, at the same time, Croatia starts running patrols up and down the river, hoping that people just don't go to the island. But what does that do? It gives them a de facto border. So it's almost like this wow. Aikido move. And so I, uh, I find out from the Liberlandians, Liberlanders, I still can't remember which it is supposed Liberlandian to be. sounds good. It does sound good. Um, so uh, I find out from them that like this whole thing is going to be like, we're not allowed to step foot on the island, but mm -hmm. the 30 year anniversary is going to be this boat party, right? And so they have all of these boats, like the sort of flotilla of boats that's going to like take off from the harbor and then just, everybody's just going to go look at the island. And I was like, I got to talk to the president. I've just, I got to like, mm. this is, this is my mission for the day. Mm. And so I, I find the biggest boat and I get on that boat. Cause I assume he's going to be on that boat. And I mean, it's a boat, so there's only so many places to look for the president. I can't find him anywhere. And then we take off and we're sort of floating down the Danube river. Suddenly Croatian patrol boats start coming alongside of us and they're like, making sure that we don't eventually go to the island. And it's like this sort of party-like atmosphere where everybody's drinking like Lieberland wine, which is called Tierra Nullis, and just like out of red solo cups and like dancing to top 40s hits. And I can't find the president until I see him, like until I see the president like speeding along on a jet ski throughout all of the different boats and in between the Croatian police. And so that's Vigilica. And what he's doing is he's like going to each of the boats, giving a little speech and then like coming back and like giving another speech to somewhere else. And I'm just like looking at him zipping around on this jet ski, like between Croatian police and all these Bitcoin millionaires on like tiny boats and big boats. And I'm just like, I got to get on that jet ski somehow. <laughs> Like this is, this is. Hop on the back. This is, I, yeah, I'm like, how, how can I get on this jet ski? And uh, I'm, you know, staring off the side of the boat. And I'm looking for the jet ski. And uh, I hear this guy from behind me. He's like, you want to get on the jet ski? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I'm the foreign secretary. I'm like, can you just, is everybody just like nominating them? Like at this point, a hobbit could have come up to me and been like, oh yeah, I'm the, I'm the diplomat of, of Liberland. And I'm like, right. okay, yeah, sounds good. Um, and he's, uh, so turns out the foreign secretary is this guy named Tom. I think he lives in Florida. Um, and he's like trying to create diplomatic relations with other countries for Liberland, for recognition of Liberland. So he ends up waving down the president on his jet ski and I finally get on the back of the jet ski with the president of Liberland. And that is like the weirdest first impression that you can make on somebody. Did you have to hold on to him? That's exactly what I did. Do you wear a life jacket? No. Ooh. Yeah, I probably should have. Now that I think about it. Yeah, so I'm just like clutching on to the president of Liberland. It's beautiful. It was the strangest first impression. <laughs> 
And so I'm like, hi. I'm like, and it's also loud because, you know, there's boats everywhere. There's yeah. Croatian police. And oh, there he is. <laughs> What's up, Vit? Oh, man. Yeah. And so I'm like holding on to him like a spider monkey. And he's like, hold on. And then we just sort of blast off. I'm like, hey, I'm Eric. And he's like, I know who you are. You've been sending a lot of emails. I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be a short ride. Like, I'm like, God, okay. I can't think of a single question to ask the president of a country that just got created, mm-hmm. even though I've been like on this, like at this point, eight month journey through unrecognized nations. And the only question I could come up with, and I'm like yelling it in his ear. I'm like yelling it in this dude's ear. I'm like, so you created a nation. What advice would you give to other people who start, want to start a country? And he kind of like idles his engine a little bit. And he seems to like consider it while the Croatian police are on this one side. And then like Katy Perry songs are coming from the Libra land boats. And he's like, everybody should start their own country. And then he just like busts out a sick 180 and then like speeds me back to the boat and deposits me there. And I'm like, like, I don't know if I'm impressed. I don't know if like this is how nations will be created in the future. I'm I like I'm I'm just sort of like dumbstruck by a failed referendum and subsequent violent conflict in Kurdistan butted up against a boat party and a president on a jet ski in the middle of the Danube. Mm. And so I'm just like standing on the boat and I start talking to the foreign secretary and he's like, so where's the final stop on your trip? I'm like, Oh, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Somaliland. The it's like an autonomous region in Northern Somalia. And he's like, we have an embassy there. <laughs> It's like all these nation states that are trying to become nation states are like connected they, somehow. Yeah, they recognize one another. Yeah. And they're the first ones. Yeah. They're the early adopters. That's right. Yeah. And so he's like, you want to stay at the embassy? And I was like, I mean, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. And so I have like a little bit of downtime in between going to Somaliland and I'm I'm kind of waiting in Bulgaria and I am not hearing anything from the, the you know, the brass at Libraland. And so I start sending like furious text messages. I mean, you know, polite but firm text messages. I'm like, hey, remember when you said I could stay at the embassy in Somaliland? Um, Because like at this point, I have no money. Like all my resources are drained. And like there's no way to stay like safely in, you know, Somaliland. It's a safer place in in the the Horn of Africa, but it's not the safest. And I think I had like $300. So I really needed to stay somewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, so I get a call from the president and he's like, so we had a problem. And I'm like, what's the problem? And he's like, well, uh, we lost our ambassador to Somaliland. So I'm like, fuck, <laughs> like, there's no way I can like just show up in Somaliland, not knowing anybody, not knowing like anything or not having a place to stay. And so I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do at this point. And then he's like, well, I don't know if this would mess up your book, but like, would you want to do that? I'm like, what? And he's like, do you want to be the Liberland ambassador to Somaliland? I was like, can I stay at the embassy? And he's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, but you also have to do stuff for us. And I was like, yeah, okay, totally. 
So I became the Liberland ambassador to Somaliland. Are you still currently the Liberland no, ambassador no, no, no. to Somaliland? No, I was just the... Oh, you resigned? I resigned, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I was there for, for like six weeks. Um, if you, I don't know if you, if you look up my Instagram, you can probably find, uh, uh, my embassy. Wow. Yeah. So, so you went there. Yeah. So I went there and like in the, and where exactly is Somaliland? So you have the Horn of Africa mm-hmm. and you basically take the full top part of it. Right. Um, so goes up into the horn and then on the horn is another sort of unrecognized nation called Puntland. And then there's federal Somalia. There, then there's federal Somalia. Of course, according to federal Somalia, according to federal Somalia in Mogadishu, the entire Horn of Africa is theirs. Um, but Somaliland is trying to create its own autonomous state on the Horn of Africa. Can you zoom out so we can see like the whole bottom of Africa? Okay, there right there. Yeah. So if you look up Hargiza, capital of Somaliland. That's right. Wow. Google recognizes it. Google recognizes it, but probably with the dotted line. That'd be my guess. Mm. So if you click on the map. That's uh, that's called the the breasts of Hargiza, those mountains. Ah, oh, look yeah. at this. Dotted line, red dotted line. That's just around the city as far as I know. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. But if you go back a little bit more. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't even have a dotted line. Hmm. Yeah. So in the beginning, I basically had two jobs as ambassador to Somalia. Or in the beginning, I had like two jobs as acting ambassador from Liberland to Somaliland. Mm-hmm. First job was to buy furniture for the embassy because there was just it was just like an empty mansion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one was to like establish diplomatic relations between Liberland and Somaliland. I'm like, I have no idea what any of that means, but like, sounds fun. Yeah, let's do it. Let's I can buy furniture definitely. Let's, yeah. Let's figure out uh, that other stuff, too. Um, So they had set me up with a contact um, who was, like, their attache to the UAE, and he was, like, building roads in Somaliland. Okay. And so he kind of gave me uh, a contact in the Somaliland government. So I ended up having, like, a meeting with the vice president of Somaliland. And it was astounding at this point because I was like, like, I'm just some dude who was on the back of a jet ski. (laughs) Like I, I, I'm just like, I just showed up in Somaliland. I have no idea what's going on right now, but like I have to go ambassador. And I was shocked because like when I, as soon as I got in front of the the vice president of Somaliland, I was like, all right, let's just say whatever a politician would say. Like, let's try and say diplomatic stuff. Mm. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. Ah, so that's Abdul Rahman. He was my, um, he was like my, uh, uh, my main contact. Okay. And he kind of plugged me into the, uh, the infrastructure of Somaliland. Incredible guy. Sadly, he's passed. Um, oh no. How did he die? I don't know. Um, but, uh, but he truly, truly incredible man. Um, yeah, really, really wonderful human being. Uh, right now we're in the middle of the Somali desert, um, because that relates to the third job that I had when, um, so I, I'd spent about like a week in the country and then all the internet just kind of shut off and I had no idea what was going on. And I went to the sort of like local international hotel and I was like, do you guys have internet? And they're like, uh, no, there's, there's no internet anywhere. And I had like zero clue what had happened in the country. 
When the internet came back on, we found out that a cyclone had blown through the country, Cyclone Sagar. And <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> News from our embassy in Hargeisa, Somaliland. Thank you, Eric. Currently working on getting, getting aid. Cyclone victims on behalf of Liberland underscore org. We will have food to 100 families before EID. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the third goal that I had other than buying buying furniture and uh, establishing diplomatic relations was to deliver aid. And I'm like... <laughs> Like I'm, I'm a Peace Corps volunteer. Like I taught English to Albanians for for two years, mm-hmm. and like worked on a mobile library. I have no idea how to deliver aid, and and specifically, I have no idea how to get money into Somaliland. Right. So I'm like, so I started like a Somali bank account, um, on behalf of Liberland, and that was a wild conversation because like I literally had to go to a bank in Hargeisa and be like, I am the ambassador from Liberland to Somaliland, and I would like to use your bank as our official embassy treasury. I have no idea what they thought I was, but they thought it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> they like they opened up this bank account, but then when the cyclone came through, I was talking with the uh, Secretary of State, and he's like, well, that's not going to work because we can't get the money there soon enough, and we need to get it to our, 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 you know, our aid team. And mm-hmm. I'm like, who's the aid team? They're like, it's you. I'm like, oh. Nice. Good. And so... They transferred money to the the guy who I was working at his office, the Syrian guy, and Bitcoin. And then he just like handed me fifteen thousand dollars, like in cash, and in U.S. Tax cash. Yeah. So wow. the the money in Somaliland is is kind of funny, <laughs> to say the least. So it's like it's so depreciated from inflation that it's it's you you pay for things in like blocks of cash, mm. or you use like sort of a digital transfer where you text somebody to bring a certain amount of cash. So like the de facto currency is the US dollar. So I just had like $15,000, which was like super unsatisfying how few bills that was. Like I was kind of hoping for like a big metal case Mm -hmm. or something, but it was just, you know, small stack like that of $100 bills. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, I have to use this money to, um, yeah, there's Puntland. I have to use this money in order to uh, figure out how we deliver aid. And so, again, I go meet with the the vice president. I think if you go to my Instagram, you can see uh, a picture of me with the vice president and mm-hmm. uh, and Abdul Rahman. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sending you all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Did out you of any pirates. No, no, it, that's um. Uh, I was I was pretty far from the ocean. I did go to the ocean at one point mm-hmm. to a port called Berbera, um, but it's. Uh, I mean, Somalia is a big place. Yeah, and so that that certainly is an element that exists in Somalia, but it's not. It's not like you know you're you're not seeing like you know people being like I'm a pirate. Right. Um. At least I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's like a largely nomadic culture. Um, How far is that from the Red Sea? Mm, I think it took me about two hours to get there. Okay. That was that was a weird road trip um, because, so this is a total sidebar, but like there's this one hotel that's kind of like the international hotel in the area. And I walk in one day and there's this white dude there and like we stand out in Somalia. Mm. <laughs> like, Oh yeah. Definitely stand out. And uh, this guy sees me in the, the coffee shop and uh, he stands up and he's like, 
you want to have coffee with us? I'm like, being a guest. And so he's with, um, a, 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 from what I understood, a preacher, Reverend Anthony. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, this guy is named Robbie. And he was also with um, like a Chinese student that was studying in Ethiopia. And I'm like, what, what are you guys doing in Hargiza right now? And they're like, what are you doing in Hargiza right now? And I'm like, yeah, I guess, I mean, whatever story you have probably isn't as weird. Mm-hmm. So fair point. And so what they were doing, Robbie used to be in the American military. Um, Reverend Anthony was his preacher. They connected while he was in, uh, uh, I guess, some military school in Coronado. And I never quite got an understanding of, of who the uh, the Chinese student was. He didn't speak um, anything that I spoke. Right. Uh, but Robbie spoke Cantonese and he also speaks Swedish. And so what he was there to do was to open businesses in what he called blue water markets. So anytime there was, there is some geopolitically unstable area, he goes in and he has manufacturing in China and he decides to sell cell phones or whatever in uh, in these areas. And okay. the dude had a passport like that. Wow. I mean, if anybody... He was a fascinating guy. Um, I I was... But anyway, he, uh, he invited... Uh, he... Uh, I think you can see Reverend Anthony. And uh, I don't know if you have my... my um, uh, my Instagram up. But anyway, so anyway, we're having coffee for a bit. I tell him that I'm the Liberland ambassador to Somaliland. And uh, he's like, oh, cool. Well, we're going on a road trip to Berbera tomorrow. Do you want to come? I'm like, I mean, I'd like to, but, you know, to travel outside of Hargeza, you need armed guards. And I'm like, I don't have the money for armed guards. And he's like, oh, it's fine. We got them. I'm like, okay. So decided to just like get in this like small convoy with Robbie, Bishop Anthony, and then this, this like, Chinese student that was calling himself David and we just like went sightseeing together mm-hmm. like we went to these caves and saw like old cave paintings and then we went to Berbera Port and we were like just sort of looking around and we we're like yeah it's a, it's a port and he's yeah. like so I'm gonna start a cell phone business here I'm like cool <laughs> literally none of that made it into the book because I'm like I have no idea what happened yeah yeah interesting super interesting dude but anyway yeah so the um so cyclone comes through i have to figure out how to deliver aid meet with the vice president again and i'm like okay um we're trying to make an aid delivery on behalf of liberland to somaliland um all i'm asking is we provide translators and guards to take us out to the affected area um and will you give us an idea of like you know what we what these people's needs are and he's like fine and so I take, I think it was like $8,000, me and Abdul Rahman, and we just bought like tons of food. We brought, and we bought like, I think it was like bags of flour, oil, sugar, salt, um, and uh, just all these workmen just sort of loaded it up in this enormous car, uh, enormous truck. Mm-hmm. And they drove it out in the center of the desert. And I was like, okay, great, we've delivered aid. And then Abdul Rahman is like, no, no, like, you know, that's not delivering aid. Like, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we we sent the food out there, mm-hmm. right? And he's like, no, like, you have to go out there because, like, we need pictures and stuff. I'm like, oh, right. Like, diplomatic aid is soft power. So it's not enough that, like, we're just giving food to people who need food. It's a ma- it 
what matters is the story around the aid, right? And so we all traveled out to the middle of the desert to find this group of, of nomads who were really affected by it. The cyclone had come through, pulled a lot of water pumps out of the uh, out of the ground where they were irrigating their their animals. A lot of the wealth in Somaliland mm-hmm. is kept in the form of goats. Mm-hmm. Killed a lot of goats, even killed a lot of the uh, uh, the uh, the the people in the area. Um, but then there are also these these second knock on effects of a disaster because when you don't have this sort of robust system to deal with a disaster like a cyclone then there are these secondary effects which are even worse. So nobody has pumps to get clean water, so suddenly there's a cholera outbreak. And so we drive for like eight hours through the desert. We're in the center of just this sweltering, sweltering heat. You know, nothing but mountains and a couple of like improvised structures around us, sort of like these uh, stick tents. And nobody's there. And I go up to Abdul Rahman, I'm like, where is everybody? And he's like, oh, they're, they had uh, deaths from cholera today. Oh, yeah. So this is, uh, over there is the vice president of Somaliland at the time. Mm-hmm. On my uh, left is Abdul Rahman. I don't know if you could tell. I'm the one in the white shirt. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. I see now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have the glasses. Right, right. Your hair looks great. Thanks. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're, we're just sort of sitting there in this empty village. And he's like, we got to wait for people to come back from the funeral. And I'm like oh god like can't this doesn't seem like a photo op time like Mm -hmm. can't we just leave the food for the people and he's like no no you know this is this is the point this is what we're doing and i'm like it was at that point that i was like hearts and minds exactly Mm -hmm. i'm not an aid worker i'm a political tool right and that just like so the the sort of head of the village is walking me through and he's he's uh he's showing me uh the the affected areas where the pumps had been taken out and all of the uh all of the the goats that i mean they looked like um they looked like stone because they'd been sort of sandblasted um and they they died sort of embedded into the into the the ground i think you mm-hmm. can probably see some of them and um he showed me all of these these goats that look like they're running away from the storm but of course that's like that's their wealth mm. and he's telling me you know we need this we need that we need the other other things um you know we need new pumps we need livestock again right you know food's great but we need all of these things mm-hmm. and i'm listening to him and i'm telling him through my translator it's like i'll relate all this information back to Liberland. i'll relate all of this back but at the same time i'm also like I know that my job here was to be a political tool and it wasn't to have sustained aid. And it was at that point where I was like, you know, as a, as an acting politician for like the briefest amount of time, I realized so quickly that like I was behaving like a politician. I was, you know, the beneficiary of respect that I didn't earn because I was just operating on behalf of something that was slightly more powerful than myself. Mm -hmm. Um, People were treating me in a way uh, that was like respectful and deferent. Uh, People were treating me in a way that was, people were treating me in a way that was respectful and full of deference because they assumed that I had power, which 
I got because I was just on the back of a random jet ski. <laughs> and I was I was acting as the role determined that I acted. And so I was like, I'll tell the president. But I didn't know at that point, like, is it is it cruel for me to give this person a certain amount of hope that Lieberland will come and help them more? Mm-hmm. And so I, I came back from that day after delivering aid and I was like, I like, I don't know. I, I like I was the beneficiary of, you know, the illusion of state backed power. I was a um, political tool for a photo op. I brought food to people. Cool. But like, to what end? Right. Is it just to gain recognition? I mean, it's, it's interesting, man. It's like a, it's like this, just like very, the very smallest scale of what some of the biggest nations in the in the world to do on just a massive scale. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that you notice in smaller countries where you know the writing on the wall is so much clearer, right? That a nation has to push to gain recognition in whatever way possible. Again, it's like that that concept of how do you how do you generate consent, not just of the governed, but how do you generate consent to do business with you as a place that's doing your best to carve out a new line on a map? How do you get somebody to say, I'm here and you're here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can do that at the end of a gun. That's the way it's been done throughout a lot of history or like a sword. Um, yeah. <laughs> But you can also do that through gifts, through aid. Mm. And yeah, those are... Is that one of the goats? Those are, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was, I mean, the day, oddly enough, the day after, um, like I basically done all the other, you know, like I I gave aid and I... um, uh, and I uh, uh, made diplomatic relations with Somaliland, uh, you know, yeah. and uh, and then I was I had been like putting off buying furniture because <laughs> I was like, I don't I don't really care how much furniture costs. I'm going to try and give as much money to, to the aid donation as possible. Right. And so like my last week, I was like, I got to buy furniture for, for this embassy. Like I said, I would do it. So I uh, I went out with uh, with one of my buddies and just went like to, I guess the the Somaliland version of an Ikea we were just like looking at bed frames and, and offices and there was a surprising amount of bed frames that like glow in the dark and had like lion heads roaring on them. Really? Yeah. I mean really fancy. That sounds pretty cool actually. It was but I was like this is not embassy furniture. Yeah. I did think briefly like get them like the glow in the dark lion head furniture. Mm. I didn't do that though. So I ended up buying them the furniture uh, as far as I know, the Lieberland Embassy in Hargeisa is still going. Um, really? Yeah, I think so. With your furniture that you got? With with Lieberland's furniture. With Lieberland's furniture, that yes, Lieberland not yours. Got. Yeah, that... that <laughs> are you yeah. looking up Somali, <laughs> <He's> Somali <laughs> looking, furniture? He's trying to find the lion head glow-in-the-dark furniture. I mean, we went to, like, a couple of stores, and it was, like, a theme. And yeah. I was, like, you know, it was, like... Uh, how, do you th- how do you think about the... Like, after all these crazy experiences, like, seeing what it's like on the ground, like, dealing with these people firsthand, which you didn't expect to experience, but it was a great learning experience. Yeah. Um, wh- how do you think about, like, what's going on, for example... Uh, between I- Israel and Palestine, 
don't know at all no <laughs> no i you know i was so when i was when i was you know briefly an analyst like my area was like i was researching a lot of uh the levantine area so like lebanon iraq um uh jordan um yeah pretty much uh, southern turkey uh over to iran yeah. I never once like touched on Israel and Palestine. Well, talking about what like the way the way you're speaking about um, like these states and how they look at the future and the past. Mm, yeah, Israel's a very interesting one. Super, probably one of the most interesting ones. They have from people I've talked to, mm. they have like the best intelligence agency that exists on Earth, mm. and like like person for person. Like, I don't, if there was a war between the U.S. and Israel, I don't think, I don't think that they would win the war. But mm. when it comes to, like, their intelligence apparatus, mm. it is far more effective and um, they're willing to go way farther than we're willing to go. And I think in, the, in Israel, I think the citizens are, it's mandatory they have to serve in the military for a certain amount of time. So, I mean, uh, like I said, I, you know, I've never, I really have not ever researched Israel and Palestine that much because mm -hmm. um, my work really never touched on it. Mm -hmm. And also specifically with this book anyway, You Are Not Here travels through countries that don't exist. Um, with that, I tried to stay away from kind of the, uh, you know, the the big, like, highly politically charged uh, right. unrecognized nations. Because, I mean, especially in the case of Palestine, I think the last thing that the world needs is like some dude from Los Angeles being like, I got it, guys. Right. I figured it out. For sure. Yeah. But I think that, to your point, but they, like, what I'm saying is like, when you think about that and you think about Israel, it's like like they have more of a like national galvanizing for lack of a better word, story than mm. anybody. Like look at the history It's a great of, one, yeah. Yeah. Look at the history of Israel and like like if anyone has more will to continue to thrive into the future, it's them. Well, I mean, and I'm sure there's other countries too. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that that from from one perspective, you should look at the the uh, the constraints and imperatives of of Israel, right? Mm. You know, they're a uh, they're a small nation, um, and they are uh, surrounded by antagonistic nations to them. Right. So, what does that necessitate that you do? Like, turn everybody into a soldier, like have an yeah. incredible defense apparatus. Right. Have strong international relations. That's mm. the imperative there. Okay. They're constrained by their landmass because they don't have, um, like they're constrained by their landmass because they don't have the natural buffers that we have. Right. So that's a big part of it. Mm. Um, but I think, I mean, and, and in terms of, of national story, sure. I mean, you know, according to, I, I wouldn't speak for an Israeli, but like, it goes back to the Bible times. So, right. right? Like yes. that's, that's a, a pretty compelling story. Yes. You know? Um, I mean, I think that when I think about the, the countries that I stayed away from, I mean, largely I was constrained by the fact that like, one, I didn't know I was going to go throughout all of these other unrecognized countries because I didn't think I was going to get banned from Turkey. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Um, but uh, the other thing was like, I I wanted to sort of, 
shine a light on this conversation as it is globally. Like these aren't the only unrecognized nations that that exist in the world. There's right. there's literally probably about a hundred of them, as far as I know. Um, wow. And that's you know there's um, uh, you, you look at Taiwan too. You know um, there's partial recognition of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Tibet is another one of these areas. Right. Um, there's constant independence movements in uh, in Spain, obviously. Um, Romania even has has an independent contingent in it. Um, so I, th- I think that there are there are independence movements in the Transylvanian area. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is kind of indicative of where we're moving globally, in my opinion, anyway, because now the things that previously you know we're not a part of empires anymore like we're not a part of the ottoman empire the the time of empire is is largely spent and now we're as you say like trying to become a global community but what does a global community mean right can you separate your own national identity Right. Away from the pool of wealth that your nation controls and its ability to do violent force, presumably on your behalf. And that I don't know. You know, what uh, it kind of goes back to the question about like us as Americans, Mm -hmm. right? So without the American military, without it being a wealthy and presumably prosperous nation, um, like what what makes us Americans? Mm-hmm. I think so. Here's a good thought experiment that I think about sometimes. Let's say uh, you know America goes away, um, and there's there's a, a huge refugee population of of Americans, people calling themselves Americans who've spread throughout the entire world. Mm-hmm. How do we group up? You know, how do we what? How do we group up? Okay. Let's say there's you know uh, a, an American contingent in um, you know Beijing. Do we have a America town? Like, do we carve out our own, you know, little neighborhood where only Americans go? I don't know. Probably not. Like, I think we would, I think we would separate differently than that. Because, it, again, it goes back to the individual nature. It goes back to the individual nature of being an American. Mm. Would we go back to whatever our previous nationality was? I don't know. Like, how do you find those people who believe the same national story as you do? And because of that, even though you don't know that person, you have a shared affinity with them. Right. I mean, right now we're seeing this movement of people who are, I think they're, they're calling them the passport bros. Um, so yeah, like there's the, there are these golden passport schemes. And this is huge in the crypto universe where it's like, okay, well, I have a bunch of wealth. But uh, the U.S. makes it really difficult to cash out my cryptocurrency mm-hmm. um, or it's, um, you know, uh, my, my businesses are, are not mm-hmm. protected in any sort of legal, legal framework in the United States. So what do I do? Get a new passport. Malta is like this huge place for this. You get a Maltese passport, suddenly you get access to the EU and they have pretty liberal laws in terms of, of working with alternative finance. And so we're already seeing wealthier classes of people start to find alternatives to their citizenship so that they can benefit more. 
Wow. And there's even, oh man, um, this is such a great point and I can't remember what it's called exactly. The Seafarer Movement. Can you look that up? Seafarer? Oh, this is crazy. Yeah, yeah. This is really dope. It's like billionaires who are starting their own nations on the sea. Try Seafarer or Peter Thiel. Libertarian steading utopia from Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. Whoa, what is this? Silicon Valley billionaire's dream of a floating libertarian utopia may have finally been killed. Peter Thiel's dreams of a... Okay, that's the same title. Keep going down. Wow, what was this all about? So the 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 seasteading movement, from what I understood, was was again, it's this this movement where you can have all the benefits of coming from you know whatever nation you come from, but you can also uh, resist any detriments that come in the form of taxation. Ah, right. Okay. So hey, I don't live in America anymore. I live on these crazy libertarian boats. Right. Or maybe on an island in the Danube River. Or in the metaverse, right? And you know, now you don't have to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. This is this is the thing that I'm talking about about the statehood as a service model, right? It's it's citizenship that provides for you the things that a nation provides for you, but it's essentially the wealth and protection of the nation state without actually the culture or the story of the nation state, right? So if you're a guy who's like a billionaire like Peter Thiel living on a yacht being a seafarer, you're st- you can still have businesses in America and make tons of money not to pay taxes, but you just don't get... But can you still benefit from having residents there? I have no so idea. So if you were a seafarer like this, would you be able to legally be a citizen of the United States as well as like some other country? So there are certain countries that allow for like dual citizenship. Yeah. Um, and the U.S. is like one of the if one of the two countries in the world that taxes you no matter where you live. Mm-hmm. Actually, weirdly, the other one is Eritrea. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, so that I don't quite understand. Um, well, that's an interesting thing that people always complain about, and in, in like on me- in media too, they complain about like all the billionaires, like like Elon and Bezos and Zuckerberg, like putting all their bank accounts overseas so they don't have to pay taxes. Right. So, what happens if you put your life overseas so that you don't have to pay taxes? Right. Then you you uh, this is this is sort of uh, spelled out in a, a book. Um, it's, it's actually pretty haunting. Uh, I think it was written in 1997. It's called the the Sovereign Individual, mm-hmm. and so what it does is it um, uh, it uh, predicts the rise of uh, the failure of nation states to provide what citizens would need or want, and the rise of self sovereign individuals who can provide their own goods, services, mm. and protection. Right. 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 And so, like, I mean, I, I'm, and and you'll see in the book, uh, like, I'm, I'm of a couple of minds about like the libertarian leanings that that exist, especially in the, the cryptocurrency space and in um, uh, in Liberland certainly, because I think that there's like two ways that you end up becoming a hardcore libertarian, and it's like one, you're wealthy enough to f- afford only private services. Yes. Right. Yeah. The other way is your state's collapsed and suddenly you're a libertarian overnight because the state isn't there to provide any services mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you just became a libertarian. And so I think the people on the one side of things where they've become wealthy enough to afford 
only private services to sort of dance in between the borders of the world and to uh, to fund themselves beyond borders and, and oftentimes laws. Mm. They look at the rest of the state-based population and they're like, well, we did it, why can't you? And it's like, well, because it takes a lot of capital to sort of reach the escape velocity yes. of the nation state. Right. And at the point that you reach that escape velocity, you're not believing that national story anymore because you just don't care, in my opinion. <laughs> right. Yeah, man. That that That's probably true. Like, what does the U.S. do for you at the point that you provide your own protection you provide your own health care. You provide your own everything. If you move out to well, a boat. Well, at some point, like, okay, let's take, let's take Elon Musk, sure. for example. He relies on a lot of government contracts for a lot right. of his businesses, like SpaceX or Tesla or whatever it may be. So he kind of depends on the U.S. for this stuff. So if the U.S. wanted to strong arm him into paying taxes they could they could say okay we're just going to get rid of all your contracts and basically like choke off all all this money from your companies same thing with with um same thing with bezos right because the u.s could if they wanted to they could decide to restrict amazon or like put the their boot on the neck of amazon and sort of like cut off like that that's what's happening with um that's what's similar to what's happening with in the FDA right now with um, supplement products. So there's, there's in the FDA and with pharmaceutical companies, they, I don't know if you're familiar, but they have like- Yeah, I, I heard you been on that. There's these patents, right? These patent laws where um, pharmaceutical companies can get, basically get patents on certain drugs and make a ton of fucking money um, on these drugs. But there's this weird blurry line between certain supplements and patentable drugs. And, um, if one of these big pharmaceutical companies or the F, which they work in cahoots with the FDA, like they, they literally like somebody who works for the FDA can get hired to work at a pharmaceutical company. It's like a revolving door. So if the FDA decides that they want to help this pharmaceutical company by making this supplement a quote unquote drug under patent, they, the FDA can strong arm Amazon into taking all that shit off of Amazon. So the government can do things to manipulate these big companies that these like billionaires, oligarchs um, rely on. It's totally accurate. But when we say the government, you're talking about the American government. American. Yeah, exactly. And, and suddenly we're seeing the fact that America is the only game in town. You know, there's enormous amount of wealth that's coming up in China, in Southeast Asia, in mm. Africa, especially. Um there's an enormous amount of wealth there. And when you have a business, let's say a digital business, where you know, you're know you trading bits and not atoms, then you'll put your business in whatever country is the most permissive and has the best deal for you. Mm. So yeah, certainly the US could uh, you know, stomp on, on uh, uh, Elon Musk's companies, uh, but what would the US miss out on? Right. What wouldn't they have access to? Right. You know, and and a lot of a lot of the uh, you know a lot of the ethos has been privatize in the U.S. Right? Privatize R and D, um, and and stimulate businesses that are doing things in our national interest. Right. So if you stomp on businesses that are within your national interest, then 
what happens to your country. Mm. You know, and this is this is the the dangerous thing about money not caring about borders. And so what happens then when there's an enormous amount of fiscal flight to more permissive areas? Like what happens to the the people that are left within those borders? Are they just customers that are stuck believing a national story? Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the sovereign individual, the sovereign individual sort of predicts that everybody will have a certain amount of sovereignty, but this will come after a period of, you know, chaos as people are, are emerging from sovereign nation states where their identity is plugged into a nation state Mm. to being a global citizen. Yeah. And I mean, like there, and of course in the sort of like conspiracy theorist community, there's like this huge uh, uh, antagonism towards like, well, they want one world government. And it's mm-hmm. like, uh, like one, who's they? Um, and, and Schwab, yeah. Bill Gates. <laughs> so I hear from, from yeah. the, uh, the YouTube videos that I watch mm-hmm. at like three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> um, tinfoil hat strapped on. Um, but yeah, it's like, what do we progress towards? Do we progress towards uh, a s- globe that's just dominated by one power? Or is it a group of nation states that are subject to the most powerful nation state? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think it ultimately depends on our reassessing of what national identity is. And can you separate that away from, again, military power and financial power? Like, does that happen? I don't know. I can't even fucking wrap my head around what that would look like. <laughs> I can't either. I like there was there's there's some really cool sci-fi books about these things kind of happening. Um Really? Yeah, um there's one oh it's a fantastic book called uh, Forever War. Um it's not there's a there's a Forever War book by Dexter Filkins. Um, and that's, that's about Iraq. Um, but then forever war is about, I think it's by Joe Halderman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was written in the 1970s. I want to say incredible, incredible book, but it's about this soldier who sort of shipped off to, um, war and he has to, uh, on another planet, you know, some galaxy far, far away. And he has to go through a wormhole every single time. So every single time he leaves and comes back, like Earth is like a couple hundred years in the future. Right. It's super cool. He stays the same age. He stays the same age. And also since his like military paycheck is like constantly getting dumped into into his account, Uh since he constantly gets paid from his like military paycheck, he's like wealthy beyond imagination. And he doesn't really know what to do with himself. And this was this was a uh, uh, a book. From what I understand, it was a book about the sort of dislocation that soldiers returning from Vietnam felt as soon as they came back to the United States. And so, in one of these versions of Earth that the soldier comes back to, um, the the world has, or at least the United States, has sort of subdivided into. Um, these farming communes, which mm. are, um, you know, they are, they're well-fed, uh, but they're also sort of workhorses. Um, and then the sort of like decadent city centers, which are quite dangerous. Mm. And people are doing more like um, knowledge-based labor, but everybody's 
sort of scrapping to find work. And so you have like these this massive polarization in the community of the United States. And so if we have, and sometimes they even, this isn't the exact same topic, but they call this the, the barbell economy. And this is something that we'll see, you know, that people predict we'll see with, with AI, which is like, you'll have an economy that instead of going, you know, like this, where you have like people earning more and more, and then in the center, you have this sort of, like I said, a robust middle class, mm -hmm. you'll only have people who are like the laborers on one side, and then the sort of like highly paid technocrats on the other side. And then everybody else will be sort of operating on like UBI, um, which I oh, think whoa. is in the book. Yeah. Whoa. Wow, man. Well, we just did like four hours. Did bro. we? Yeah. Shit. Oh, almost. Fuck. Like three three hours and forty five minutes. Look at that. So thanks. <laughs> happy. You just broke my brain. Sorry, thanks dude. A lot. <laughs> happy uh, Happy Independence Day. Happy Fourth of July. Yes. Happy Fourth of July. Happy Independence Day. Perfect day to drop this. Everybody, uh, go out and buy. You are not here. Where Travels. can they buy it? Where uh, Where's where they Where are they finding this book? Uh, so this will just be on Amazon for right now. You can get it in uh, paper. Uh, there. Um, so you can get it in paperback or you can get it in digital. Okay. Um, and then other stores to come. Uh, I think it's right now just in in wherever Amazon ships to in okay. um, Europe and, and the United States. Perfect. Um, more places to come. Um, where are you going next? Where, so many places, man. Um, uh, so I'm going uh, to, uh, I'm going to New York. Yeah, I'm actually just going to friends' weddings. I'm not going anywhere okay. interesting at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back to Albania and like, like okay. chill out for a while. I, uh, it's been, uh, it's been a lot of pushing on this book to, to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there are some other thoughts of projects that I want to do with like weird travel stuff. Um, I kind of want to do back to the Arctic. I, so that's one thought of it. And it kind of is like a, a future book. Um, I want, I was thinking about doing this like travel book about like how to love the future. Um, because it's like, I don't think anybody takes seriously that the human race is going to stick around for a thousand years. Right. Right. But like. Don't we have to? We gotta get off the planet. Yeah, man. <laughs> and so it's like I'm I'm curious about um I'm curious about like places and technology that actually sees that as a serious thing. Um and actually in in the Arctic in Svalbard, they kind of have a project where uh where they're doing this kind of work where they have the uh the Arctic Seed Vault, mm. which is this crazy vault that's built under a mountain and obviously Svalbard is as close to the North Pole as you can get you know mm -hmm. where there's human habitation and uh, so they have all of the world's seeds um, that are donated by seed banks of respective nations yeah. so that if there is a cataclysmic event and some type of species is wiped out um, then they can go back to the the seed vault in Svalbard, which no is under shit. this mountain. Yeah, it's actually been used a couple of times in Syria. That's wild. And on top of that, they also have, I want to say it's like the uh, Global Memory Project, which is um, a store of the world's data. And it's literally in a mine. Like I, I went to, and nobody's allowed in it. Like even the king of Norway is not allowed in. Um and it's sort of operated as like a global service to the the, mm. the world on behalf of Norway. Um, and so the memory project is like, okay, so we have this. If you look up the seed vault, it actually looks like a, a, a level from um, a 007. 
Yeah. So oh, that's the seed ball. I've seen this. Yeah, it's cool, huh? That looks like something from Star Wars. Super. Man. Yeah, it's not. It's not as big and impressive as you think. No. Which is unfortunate, but it. Whoa. It, if you you have to go into this mine to actually see the entrance of it, and it's like super highly highly guarded. What do they keep in there? People's fucking crypto wallets. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, or they didn't just the seeds. They didn't let me in. Um, no, they they keep seeds in there, uh-huh. but then they also keep um, like it, treasure troves of the world's data. Oh my god! But the 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 thing that they told me about it, which is really interesting, is that they're like, we're kind of at a, we have a problem. It's called the Global Memory Project. Mm-hmm. They're like, we have a a problem because like again, if we take this whole, you know, the human race is going to be around for the next thousand years, yeah. even if there's some sort of cataclysm. Um we have the problem of the decay of the data. Like, what do we store it on? And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm at the right. bottom of this mine with this, like, you know, really nice Norwegian tour guide. And she's like, you know, the the future of this is really storing data on DNA because, like, it won't, it won't decay at the same rate. And we're just, I'm just like, in the middle of a mine listening to this lady talk about storing, like, the world's information on DNA. It, so, Whoa. Yeah, so that's one thought. Um, that is some spooky shit, man. Super, super. And then, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, if somebody if somebody wants me to do a crazy travel thing, I'd, I'd love to do it. Um, the other thought is to do a, a back-in-time travel bit mm. and uh, recreate what's called the Hippie Trail, which is an overland journey from Austria to Calcutta um, that hippies used to do back in the 60s. It was only around for like 10 years or mm-hmm. so. Um, but it's not around now because like, you know, it goes through Afghanistan, it goes through Iran. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had an idea of like doing it with no technology that existed past 1969. Oh, that's great. It'd be cool. Yeah. You'd have to film the whole thing. Exactly. The only technology you'd be allowed to have is cameras. No, no, no. Film it on film. On film. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Be really cool. That would be great. If anybody wants to pay me to do that, that'd be, that'd be pretty cool, man. <laughs> well, well, we'll get you back in here to talk about it. Absolutely, to talk man. about that shit too, dude. Thanks so much for having yeah, me. Honestly, thanks again. Huge fan. All right, good night, bitches.